Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. week, as you recall, Will had joined Dr. Smith and the robot in a search for wild truffles, little dreaming that they would find something far different, something that would plunge them into an incredible adventure with creatures from another mysterious world. Dr. Smith, look! A crown! I see it's a crown. I have eyes in my head. The question is, what is a crown doing here? William, what have I told you about handling other people's property? But, Dr. Smith... But, me no buts, my boy. We will respect the rights of others. No doubt the owner will shortly appear to claim his property. I wonder where it came from and who left it. That is none of our business. Oh, my, those rubies are as large as hen's eggs. Ah, 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 Dr. Smith. I was only checking to make certain that it was secure. If it fell over, some of that lovely workmanship might be damaged. Come along, Will. Let's get on about our truffles. Bless me, I forgot my truffle tools. I'll get them. Uh, Never mind, I'll do it. Why don't you go on ahead with the robot, and if you find any truffles, uh, call out. Uh, Loud. Yes, sir. Uh, Quite loud. Okay. Ah. A world ransom in jewels. Now what to do with it? Where? Welcome back, folks, for episode 24 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 24th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled, His Majesty Smith. Now, this episode triggered a question for you, Kurt, that I've never bothered to ask. Kirsteiner has a very regal ring to it. Does the royal blood run in your veins, sir? 
only on my maternal grandmother's side. Uh, but I better not discuss it as the relation is one of the most infamous and hated kings in all of English history. Oh, the pain. The pain. <laughs> but on the Kirsteiner side, there's no royal blood and therefore no skeletons in the closet. Although we did have one royal hanger-on of interest, but I'll tell that story a little later. Uh, what about you? The August line sounds a little bit like Augustus Caesar. Any relation? I'm afraid not. It turns out all of my ancestors were peasants, and very poor peasants at that, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's never too late to change that in the future. Yes. (laughs) Hail Augustus. (laughs) Yes. Well, this time we have quite a few production notes before we begin with the story, so I better get going on that. 49-year-old Carrie Wilbur is back with his fourth script for Lost in Space. We last enjoyed his work for The Sky Pirate. This story solidifies the template for many future episodes of the series where Dr. Smith is bribed or conned by visiting aliens, and the castaways are forced to bail him out yet again. However, I think this one goes beyond the formula with some novel twists because it has some positive themes about the value of humanity and self-sacrifice. That's topped off with some really choice comedic bits by Jonathan Harris. This story would also mark the first of several times that Dr. Smith would be duplicated as a plot device. Even though this script underwent copious revisions from editor Tony Wilson, in the end, Carrie Wilbur retained sole screen credit. 43-year-old Harry Harris is back for his second tour of duty on Lost in Space. He last directed The Keeper Part 2, and he would ultimately go on to direct five episodes of Lost in Space, two time tunnels, 12 Voyage to the Bottom of the Seas, and a whopping 24 episodes of Land of the Giants, which is kind of surprising because this episode's shoot went really, really long. It was filmed from February 18th through March 2nd, 1966, eight days spanning into nine. Talking about the pressure that Irwin placed on holding to schedule, Harry Harris relayed during one interview that, whereas Irwin's favorite mantra to shout at directors who fell behind was, time is money, the crew had another one they whispered to new directors, eight pages a day keeps Irwin away. That is, filming eight pages of a script a day. Well, that was a bridge too far for this episode, which required extra time to set up and light the numerous split screenshots to pull off the Smith twin scenes. I guess in the end that might have been what saved Harris from falling out of favor with Uncle Irwin. Well, he sure did a bang-up job with those split screenshots. They are absolutely perfect. You can't see a seam in the background, and the, the timing between the two twins is just flawless. It's it's remarkable stuff. Yeah, I thought they were superior to the ones they pulled off in the Oasis. I thought they were really good in this one. Yeah, and, you know, maybe that's why Irwin was, you know, because Irwin's always looking at these things as pathways to do other projects. And he's probably looking at this and saying, okay, I can use this same sort of thing in Land of the Giants. So even though it's taking more time to do this, he's thinking, well, this is a learning process. I'm going to be able to use this on the other three series. Exactly, yes. Well, the episode aired on March 23rd, 1966, and it got a summer repeat on July 13th, 1966. However, it was supposed to be aired the week prior but was preempted by a real-life space drama when Gemini 8 was forced to make an uncontrolled emergency splashdown with astronauts future first man Neil Armstrong and David R. Scott on board. The nonstop special news coverage of the saga kept most Americans glued to the tube until the capsule and crew returned safely to Earth. We've joked before about Irwin's luck with preemptions vis-a-vis his tight network delivery schedule, but I suppose in this case, being preempted by Walter Cronkite and a NASA mission in distress is a little more respectable than by Jane Goodall, Leonard Bernstein, or even Cinderella. 
Interestingly, CBS would receive over 2,000 angry phone calls and many more letters from viewers who were disappointed at not being able to watch Lost in Space on schedule. Well, you know, I'm not one to accuse Lost in Space or Irwin of putting his thumb on the scale in order to help preemptions and buy it more production time. But if you do a Google search, you'll see that Jonathan Harris did visit Cape Canaveral just prior to that Gemini liftoff. So (laughs) just kidding. No, but uh, you never can be too sure. Well, all the regular characters are featured in this episode. Playing the human-like android Nexus is 42-year-old Liam Sullivan. Previously, he'd taken two trips into the Twilight Zone, once for the episode titled The Silence, which also featured Jonathan Harris, and for The Changing of the Guard. He also later played Parman in the 1968 episode of Star Trek titled Plato's Children. Guest starring as the alien master is 36-year-old Kevin Hagen. He'd also twice survived the Twilight Zone, appearing in Elegy and You Drive. Alan must have liked the actor, casting him in four time tunnels, two voyage to the bottom of the seas, and nine episodes of Land of the Giants, where he played the recurring role of the menacing giant police inspector Kobik. Most people will probably remember him for playing Doc Hiram Baker on 113 episodes of Little House on the Prairie. Aha, uh-huh. so he played that doctor. That would explain where he learned all his human biology for this episode. <laughs> Just a little, you have to go back to the time tunnel, though, in order to pull it off. One came before the other. Ah. Well, this episode is also unusual for the large number of uncredited extras, four men and four women, that form part of Smith's royal court. I wonder how much they were being paid. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know what those actors were being paid, but I can tell you what members of a real royal court entourage were paid in real life, and that is... Nothing. Nothing at all. Oh, nothing at all. (laughs) Yeah, it was considered a great honor, and they did it for free. However, there were significant fringe benefits to being friends or companions to royalty besides the A1 food and wine. And here's where that family story comes in. Mm. My great-great-aunt was a lady-in-waiting to Empress Elizabeth of Austria in the 1890s. So when Emperor Franz Joseph had a toothache, she recommended her nephew, the dentist, Mm. which led to all sorts of other rich nobles becoming regular customers. So it's kind of like how our politicians operate in Washington today. None of them seem to get paid very much, but they all seem to retire as millionaires. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that, let's get on with the story. The Act 1 teaser is a long one, clocking in at seven minutes, which is about half the length of a typical act. It starts out with the narrator catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. The scene opens with the big three, Dr. Smith, Will, and the robot, trudging along through the rocky desert terrain. Will has a hoe, Smith a basket, and the robot a shovel. This time, they're not hunting for radioactive rocks. Instead, they're searching for, of all things, wild truffles. (laughs) I wonder whose idea that was. Well, it may have been the uh, financial motive because uh, truffles are extremely expensive. One uh, French gourmet referred to them as the diamond of the kitchen. Mm. And I think they're now over $550 a pound. So it's almost like uh, finding gold. Indeed. In any event, Smith's basket looks empty, so truffles must be as rare on Preplanus as they are on Earth. But suddenly, their luck changes when an astonished Will gasps, Dr. Smith, look! A crown! And sure enough, it is a crown. In fact, a rather large and ornate one, resting on a regal pillow on top of a boulder. It's a curious sight for sure. Smith also has a stunned expression on his face but brusquely replies that he can see it for himself, but 
What is a crown doing here? Yes. Well, the camera follows the three castaways as they approach the unlikely treasure to investigate further. But when Will casually reaches out to touch it, Smith barks at the boy, admonishing him to respect other people's property. Wow. I guess he figures if anyone's going to do the touching, it's going to be him. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Will tries to explain, but Smith shuts him down. Shifting his eyes to make sure they're alone, the doctor adds that no doubt the owner will shortly appear to claim his property. Hmm. The camera lingers on Smith's face with that beautiful crown in the foreground. Smith can't take his eyes away from the priceless artifact. Will asks an obvious question. Where did it come from and who left it? Still transfixed on the royal headgear, Smith again lectures the boy that it's none of their business. But he's having a hard time hiding his obvious desire to claim this rich prize for himself. He even comments out loud about how the crown's rubies are as large as hen's eggs. Then he involuntarily reaches for the crown. Now it's a smiling Will's turn to reprimand. Ah, 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 Dr. Smith. Well, Smith checks himself and quickly retracts his hand. And annoyed at being caught, he covers by saying, I was only checking to make sure it was secure. If it fell over, some of that lovely workmanship could be damaged. Smith takes his eyes off the crown for a second to see if that excuse worked on Will, but the boy merely nods back with a uh-huh expression on his face. Yeah, that cutaway shot of Will's knowing expression is priceless. For a kid, Bill Mummy could really act very mature. He sure could. Sensing it's time to reset the table, Dr. Smith composes himself, smiles, and abruptly announces, it's time they get along about their truffles. The threesome head out of the area, but as they do, Smith sneaks one more loving glance back at the crown, then assumes a calculating expression that tells me those devious gears in his head are turning at warp speed. What's he up to? After walking only a few yards, Smith stops mid-stride. Bless him, he forgot his truffle tools back at the crown. Will volunteers to run back and get it, but strangely Smith for once refuses an opportunity for someone else to do some extra work. He tells the boy to run ahead with a robot, and if they find any truffles, to call out loud, quite loud. Yeah, he'll need it to be real loud so they can hear it through all the fur of that royal crowd he's going to put on his head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems suspicious to me, but Will didn't seem to catch that at all, which I thought was a little odd considering how he'd reacted to Smith's obvious lie earlier. Yeah, Will probably expects habitual lies at this point. You know, it's kind of like Hillary knew what Bill really meant when he said... Uh, so, honey, I got to go work late tonight, you know, at the Oval Office. <laughs> you know, after a while, you just kind of give up and accept certain behaviors in, in rogues, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. It does, yeah. Well, in any event, they run along, leaving the doctor alone. Smith hesitates for a moment, and his face changes from innocent to devious. Then he scampers back to his prize. Taking a quick look to make sure the coast is clear, the now-beaming Dr. Smith adoringly grasps the crown, (laughs) turning it in his hands to examine this world ransom in jewels. But what to do with it? Well now, there's only one possible answer. Try it on for size. And what could possibly go wrong? But a second after the crown is resting on his head... A mini cosmic storm erupts from nowhere, complete with lightning and electrical discharges emanating from the crown itself. In a flash, Smith's satisfied expression changes to terror as he struggles to remove the zapping chapeau from his noggin. 
As more bolts of lightning flash, he screams in agony for help. Hearing that, Will and the robot rush back to the scene of the commotion. Apparently, Smith's not only scared, but experiencing real pain because when the boys arrive on the scene, Smith's on his knees and still unable to remove the crown from his head. But fortunately, Will grabs it and effortlessly lifts it right off the doctor's head. As soon as he does, the storm stops and calm returns. Gasping for breath, Smith pulls himself back on his feet. Oh, what a horrible feeling. That thing just wouldn't let me go. A thousand and one pins and needles penetrating every inch of my body. Now you be careful with that thing, my boy. It bites? Well, it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't touched it. Remember what you said about property rights? (laughs) When you grow up, my boy, I hope you'll grow in tolerance for the weakness of others. I just couldn't help myself. (laughs) He tells Will to put the crown down before it bites him, but the robot, who's been dead silent till now, interjects that There is no danger in this object for the boy. Quiet, you despicable dunce. Why did you help me in my hour of need? While nobody's paying attention, curiosity gets the better of Will, and he decides to test out the robot's theory, placing the crown on his head. And what do you know? It's not biting him. Hey, look, Dr. Smith, it fits. Take it off, my boy, take it off. Look! That Imperial fanfare announces the arrival of a rather large party of humanoid-looking aliens. In fact, so humanoid that the surprise Dr. Smith blurts out, Human beings? Yeah? When I heard those trumpets in the royal court appeared, it reminded me of those 1960s Imperial Marginaz. You know, you take a bite and suddenly a fanfare plays and a crown <laughs> appears on your head. And the more you eat, the more you feel and look like a king. You remember those, right? Yes, I do. And... The- <laughs> Oh, you know, I'll bet you anything that that crown that they wore was actually the same one they were using that ad. (laughs) It looks like You don't think Irwin actually paid for them to make a special one for this occasion, do you? Oh, no. No, no, no. That that was definitely (laughs) pulled off a shelf somewhere. Uh, Well, the party is being led by a tall, distinguished-looking man wearing a shark-skin Nehru jacket, followed by four blonde beauties wearing white, toga-like evening gowns and sporting beehive hairdos. They are followed by four muscular male guards who, like the leader, are wearing Nehru tunics as well. Another detail I noticed, everyone in the party had a large chain necklace with a round medallion around their necks. And all the males wore ceremonial headbands around their heads. Yeah, wouldn't you love to be the uh, jewelry costumer for this episode? I mean, Lost in Space was peddling bling long before it was fashionable. That's true. The leader of the party halts a few paces in front of our castaways. With arms raised, he crosses his forearms, palm over elbow, in a kind of salute. The other males follow suit. In perfect English, he formally introduces himself as Nexus of Andronica. We have crossed 90 light years of space, seeking a being worthy of wearing that crown. At last we have found him. As the entire group of Andronicans bow before the dazed boy, Nexus recites, All hail our majesty! Now, according to Mark Cushman, this marks the first time in the series that aliens have spoken English without any explanation, or at least an illusion of one for how they're fluent in an earth tongue. I guess it was expecting too much for that to continue, but I did notice it. 
You know, I wasn't bothered by that in this particular episode because we soon learned that these aliens were specifically created to fool Smith into thinking they were human. So, you know, speaking English would be a, a normal thing for that, right? And that's why they were programmed in that language. It soon became apparent that Smith was watched and studied before he was chosen. And the main character who did that research speaks broken English, which would infer that English is not his natural tongue. So I was cool with the way that that was handled. But speaking about that weird hand salute, did you notice that several in the alien greeting party didn't do the salute properly? Two of the males held their palms over their elbows, but the other two just folded their arms like they were too lazy to salute. <laughs> you know, if I were king, I'd say, you insolent ingrates, off with your heads. Did you notice that in the background? That's a good yeah. catch. I missed that. That's that's pretty funny. I guess they were in the back row, so they thought no one would catch it. But there you were. Yeah, we're not going to reshoot that. Right. <laughs> That's great. Well, I like your explanation about the guys speaking English. That does kind of make sense. I hadn't thought about that before, so that's good. Well, remember, I mean, because when he says the very first thing he says is humans here, and what would help cement that more than the fact that they speak English? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Well, Smith's clearly stunned, but Wide-Eyed Will immediately replies that his name is Will Robinson. He's not a king. He's just a boy from Earth. Seeing an opportunity to ingratiate himself with the aliens and grinning ear to ear, Smith introduces himself. Nexus asks the doctor, is he related to the boy? I am his dear friend, his counselor, and his guide. Now tell me, sir, what are your proposals with reference to the boy? Nexus matter-of-factly answers that they intend to crown Will King of Andronica. How perfectly splendid! Will, did you hear that? You are to become a king! (laughs) Will doesn't answer Smith, but asks Nexus why they came here looking for a king. Yeah, why here? (laughs) He explains that it's a tradition of Andronica that they seek their leaders from off-planet stock to avoid weak rulers. Hey, maybe that explains why half the leaders of our society act like weirdos. Maybe they're from a different planet. <laughs> <laughs> no, just a different political party. But in, the, but in the interest of bipartisanship, which one will remain our little secret? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, hearing that, Will takes the crown off and politely says, thanks, but no thanks. As he hands it back to Mr. Nexus, Smith, alarmed, asks the boy, what's he saying? Will says, if he became king, he'd have to leave his family, and he couldn't do that. No problem, says Smith. Take them with. Instead of the hoped-for confirmation, the alien closes his eyes, nodding, No. It is impossible. Well, it's a setback, but Smith's not one to give in at the first obstacle. Another sly look comes across his face. Then he abruptly asks Will to excuse them. Sure, says Will. Then pointing a finger and cutting eyes at old Tattletale B9, he says, And take him with you. The aliens stand by silently as Smith warily watches the boys depart. After they're out of earshot, he turns his attention back to Nexus. A fine little lad. I know you'll make an excellent king. But he has refused. Pouring on the charm, Smith assures Nexus that he has great influence over young Will. He's sure he can get the lad to change his mind. Of course, it would have to be worth his while. He suggests a regency until Will comes of age. Balking at the suggestion, Nexus counters that that would give Dr. Smith virtual control of Andronica and all its subject planets. Smith's thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Exactly. (laughs) And? Mm. But if Will continues to refuse the crown, Nexus declares, they will have to seek another candidate. 
one of sublime intelligence, extraordinary valor, judicial wisdom, and royal bearing. Now we're all thinking that knocks Smith out of the running, but something tells me even though that crown bit him the first time he tried it on, he's got other ideas. Best not to be too obvious about it though, he innocently asks, if he were to find such a prospect from their party of castaways, would there be a finder's fee? Nexus assures Dr. Smith he'd be amply rewarded. Well now, that sounds better, but Smith's not shooting for a consolation prize, oh no. Oh, and uh, by the way, I should mention I'm Irish on my maternal grandmother's side. Appearing a little perplexed by that, Nexus asks the grinning doctor, is that important? Only in so much as all the Irish are descended from kings, the royal blood already flows through my veins, so to speak. At that, Dr. Smith departs the Andronicans. Until later, sir. Once he's gone, and before we go to credits, the alien suddenly assumes a dead-eyed expression, as if a switch had been turned off in his brain. He grasps the medallion hanging from the chain around his neck and raises it in front of his blank face. Then he speaks. Master, the first contact has been highly successful. The ruse seems certain to work. (laughs) And then the camera cuts to a close-up shot of another medallion, also hanging from a chain. And before we can get our bearings, a humanoid hand reaches up to grasp it. Only this hand is completely covered in coarse black hair. Oh boy. The hand raises the medallion to the mouth of a very strange-looking alien who's got some serious work to do on his personal grooming standards because it's not just his hands that need a shave, but his entire head is just one giant hairball. What did you think about that guy? Well, I I wish it were one giant hairball because that would have been scarier. The glued-on crepe hair with a little black grease paint on the face is a far cry from a real monster or a scary villain intimidating well maybe for little kids or if you're scared of dirty hippies but it needed a lot more some fangs or maybe some weird contact lenses like those solid white ones that thor johnson wore in plan nine from outer space that would have been cool something anything to make him look scarier now we all know it's probably cbs is to blame for making it so tame but at least they did maintain continuity in the second season when we get to see what appears to be the female version of that andronica appear in space beauty do you remember that episode where Judy enters the Miss Galaxy contest? There oh, was yeah. some bearded lady that looked just like a female version of a Tronican. <laughs> yeah, I do remember. So I'll give points for that. Yeah, that's good. Well, by the way, this early reveal of the weird-looking alien master was not how Kerry Wilbur conceived the teaser ending. His treatment had us going to credits after Nexus made his report and saved the reveal until much later when Dr. Smith is confronted by the master. The change was made by script editor Tony Wilson in a later revision. It's not known why he made the change, but I personally felt it was a little bit of a mistake. What's your take and any guesses on why it was added that way? I generally agree that it's better to save the monster for later, but it's almost a tradition for Lost in Space to end a teaser on a scary or suspenseful note, so showing a menacing face makes sense. It would have also felt contrived to show the hand, but not show the face, because it would be obvious that you're holding something back, because it's only natural that, you know, that if you're stopping the camera before panning upward, there's a reason mm. why you're doing that, especially if you hear the voice, which you didn't mention, the voice is good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I agree with your decision on that. So it had more umph, and also seeing the hand and the hairy face, it gave us advanced knowledge that the voice on the other end didn't belong to some nice-looking human. So it gave us, you know, that sense of foreboding. 
Yeah, I, I see your point. I see your point about that, I suppose. Remember how we talked about that movie, Curse of the Demon, uh, yeah. last time? Sure. Uh, one of the big controversies about that movie was that at the very beginning, you see the demon, this, this great monster in this wonderful scene where this monster comes out of the darkness and kills the first character in there, and you see this huge monster. The controversy was, originally, that monster wasn't supposed to be shown. You, it was all supposed to be inferred. You get, you see the guy screaming and you see him running, but you never see what the demon is. And you wonder the whole movie through, is there really a demon? And you don't see the monster until the very, very end when you discover, oh my God, it wasn't all in the guy's mind. The monster was real. Mm. Well, when they tested it, they realized that a lot of people just didn't hang in there for the whole movie because they got tired of the, the suspense. And... They went and they inserted that monster at the beginning, and the director, incidentally, hated it because, you know, to him it was his big suspense thing. But I think that's like one of the best horror movies of all time because it does reveal it early on. And you're sitting there going, no, don't, you know, don't you know this is bigger than what? No, don't. And this has the same effect with this episode because you know there's a lot more to this thing than these nice little aliens that just want to crown Smith king. There is an evil scary looking person scary in quotation marks (laughs) air quotes behind this plot and it's a conspiracy and it does add a sense of of fear and foreboding at least that's my opinion okay i think you sold me on that one now that now that i thought about it that is probably true and maybe i would have felt uh more solidly on your side of it if he had been scarier from the very beginning i'm not quite sure how he would have done that but good points all Keep in mind that it, th- this is the 1960s. If you think the attention deficit disorder was bad back then, imagine what it'd be like now. Oh, you know, no. if you don't if you don't hook them in the first five minutes, they're gone. They're out of there. You know. Exactly. Exactly. Well, hearing the promising news from Nexus that Harry Alien Master is surely pleased, but all he says as he stares blankly back at us is, "Good, good." You know, I always love those communicating medallions, but it's worth noting that they don't light up or flash or do any real indication that they're actually communicating with anyone at all. I know. We don't we don't hear the guy on the other end talking through a tinny voice or anything like that, you know, like, oh, oh, you know, it's nothing like that. We just assume that they hear each other because one talks into his medallion and then the <laughs> camera cuts to the, the Haley alien giving his apparent answer. But these are aliens and it could be they're accustomed to talk to their medallions or maybe they're large coins and metallic pets or maybe they're religious objects and they like to pray and talk to them anything is possible when you're lost in space but it demonstrates how easy it is to cut corners with special effects <laughs> and just splice two scenes together and let let the audience use their imagination and do all the connecting in their in their minds oh. so we'll have to wait until we come back to find out where this is going kurt Return from the main titles, Will and the trusty robot, still carrying their truffle tools, are heading back to the ship. By the way, if you look closely on the ground in front of the robot's treads, you can see the cable running along the sand that's pulling Bob May inside the robot suit forward. In fact, at one point, Bill Mooney nearly steps on the cable, but somehow manages to avoid tripping on it. Sorry about that, folks, but you know how nitpicky we are here at Alpha Control. Yeah, that's because you got the Blu-rays. If you got the cheaper versions like me, you don't notice those things as much. <laughs> <laughs> uh... 
Suddenly we hear Dr. Smith calling out for Will to wait for me, which causes the boys to stop and turn around. When they do, they see an out-of-breath Smith running to catch up with him. Will asks the doctor what he told the alien. I told him that under no circumstances would you even consider accepting the throne. I told him that we were believers in the democratic principle, and the divine right of kings had no place amongst us. In short, I told him to, um, to forget it. (laughs) Will buys it hook, line, and sinker, telling Smith, Golly, that was great of you. I wouldn't want to be a king anyway. There's no fun in it. But we know someone who'd want to be a king. Grinning back insincerely at Will, Smith heartily agrees, but then he quickly changes the subject. He advises Will that for the time being, they refrain from telling the others about the whole business. It will just cause needless alarm. Pulling out his go-to line, he asks the boy to... Let it remain our little secret. Run, Will, run! (laughs) It's always funny when Smith is telling, we don't need to cause needless alarm. Here's a guy who's always causing needless alarm. So well. Exactly. Will's seen this bit before, and he's clearly uncomfortable. I don't know, Dr. Smith. Dad and Don should know there are aliens on the planet. Well, of course I should, but all in good time. Just leave it to me, my boy. Well... Promise? All right, but please, Dr. Smith, don't start your tricks again. You always get in trouble. (laughs) Offended by the boy's comment, the doctor merely replies, Indeed. With that, they continue to walk back to the Jupiter campsite. And one thing I thought that was interesting about that whole little exchange was that their robot never says a word. We've seen him acting pretty sassy in the last couple episodes, but here he's maintaining, as Smith would say, a golden silence. Why? Uh, Well, maybe he's just trying to roll with a cable. (laughs) Maybe so. Later that night, we're inside the dimly lit upper deck of the Jupiter 2. Dr. Smith climbs up the ladder, carrying a small document satchel tucked under his arm. Making sure he's not being followed, he opens the airlock hatch and creeps out of the ship. But for some reason, when he exits, he fails to close the hatch behind him. Now, he's done that before, and I can never understand why. Even when my teenagers snuck out of the house late at night, they knew enough to close the door behind them. You know, they eventually got caught, but it wasn't because they didn't cover their tracks. So this kind of seems odd to me that Smith would leave that obvious clue. He's run out of the house. Unless somebody's following him and needs to get out the hatch. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Smith hurries out of the camp and right into the night. He's clearly up to no good, but where is he going and what's in that folder he's carrying? That's when we see Will creep out of the hatch that Smith conveniently left open for him. (laughs) (laughs) Pausing at the entrance, he sees Dr. Smith exiting the campsite, then decides to follow him, but at a distance. Maybe that's why he's following him. He didn't intend on following him, but Smith left the door open, and he actually went to go close the door. Oh, well, there goes Dr. Smith. Uh, He's got a dossier. Better follow him. (laughs) (laughs) See, we can come up with an explanation for anything if we try. Yeah, we sure can. With the act nearing a climax, we cut back to Smith. He arrives at the edge of a clearing. He pauses, and a look of recognition comes over his face. The camera cuts to the entrance of a spaceship. At least I think that's what it's supposed to be, because it's a large, semicircular, metallic-looking structure with what appears to be a ramp leading right up to a hatch that's flanked by a set of round, blinking lights. But what's weird, and never really remarked upon, is that this structure appears to be embedded into a very rough rock wall. 
Now, before you comment on that, Kurt, first, there's a very good reason why Smith has a look of recognition on his face. Can you tell us what it is? <laughs> well, it's the same doorway that he uh, went through repeatedly on the keeper and also let all those monsters out of. But now it's up against a rock, you know. Bingo. Well, now tell me what's your take on the entrance being embedded in the rocks. Is this supposed to be a spaceship or is it just a campsite that the Andronicans built? I mean, w- when you first saw it, what did you think? Did you think it was a ship or something else? Well, uh, I, I think it becomes clear later on that it's not a ship because they end up waiting for the ship to show up. But it's it's like a, a, a home base, if you will, a base camp. Yeah, okay. But I thought it was cool. I thought it looked cool. I, I liked it. Yeah, I, I liked it too. It was just... Scratching my head, you yeah. know, overthinking these things sometimes, I suppose. What we have to remember is that, you know, for us, it's like, why would you build a base inside a rock, you know, and go and chip away all that stuff? They don't chip it away. They just go in there with those lightsabers or whatever it is and burn the, the space out of a rock. It actually saves them a lot of time and energy because they don't have to put up walls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After assessing the situation, Smith cautiously approaches the entrance to the structure. As soon as he reaches the ramp, we see that Will has caught up with the sneaky doctor, but Will's being a little sneaky himself. He crouches behind a boulder and silently observes the doctor's machinations from a distance. Smith walks up the ramp and is looking for the doorbell, but finding none decides just to knock on the hatch. At first, it seems no one's home, but before he can knock a second time, the hatch glides up, revealing our old friend Nexus standing face to face with the delighted doctor. Nexus appears serious and unsurprised, yet he greets Smith with... Good evening, Dr. Smith. We were not expecting you so soon. Smith, with his head obviously bobbing around to get a good look inside the Andronican structure, replies that... I thought I would bring you the report tonight. I knew you would be most eager to get it. Hmm, what report? The camera cuts back to Will, still hiding behind the rocks, and it's clear from the dialogue that he can also hear the conversation. Nexus takes a step out of the doorway, and the hatch slides quickly shut behind him, which startles Smith. With his back to Smith, Nexus steps down the ramp and baits the doctor. Perhaps you also hope to see the interior of our ship? Now see, he called it a ship in that point. That was kind of interesting. And I thought, well, that settles it. It's a spaceship. But then, as you mentioned, later on, they're going to talk about waiting for a ship. So it's still a little bit confusing here. Well, yeah, you're spotlighting an apparent blooper. He calls it their ship. Later on, he says the ship's going to pick them up. So, But, you know, I mean, it is more like a base because yes. otherwise they would have just taken off. But I mean, or they would have hauled that giant mountain with them as they took <laughs> off. You know, But it looked cool. And as far as recycling goes, I thought it was far better that they stole the, the keeper rampway rather than the entire ship. So I like the rocky theme overall. Mm-hmm. Smith's rattled by the alien's accusation. Good heavens. Do you think I'm a spy? Well, perhaps I was a bit curious. I believe you terrestrials have a saying that curiosity killed the cat. Oh, sir, I certainly meant no harm. And there are no grounds for violent action. I was only working in your best interests. May I see what you have? Oh, yes, indeed. A complete dossier on every male member of the Jupiter II expedition. This uh, report on Professor John Robinson. A man of simple virtues, wholehearted loyalties. I am devoted to him, but... Yes, but... Does one rule a kingdom by simple virtues? 
You suggest that a little more guile is needed in the professor's makeup? Exactly. And now, about Major West. A lovely fellow. I'm devoted to him, too. He's the typical bluff, blunt, good soldier, forever foremost in the fray. But again, somewhat lacking in cunning. You place a great premium on cunning, Dr. Smith. Smith leaves that one hanging, but maintains a look of piety as there's a quick cut to the eavesdropping will. Okay, now I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to retreat and dodge all the rotten fruit that people are going to be tossing at me. But it's one thing for the aliens to speak English. After all, we discover later on that they've been watching the Robinsons for some time to select their target. Maybe they even watched Earth TV and listened to our radio broadcast after the 10 or so years that it took to reach them. One could theoretically learn our language that way. But how the heck does one learn to read English? watching sitcoms and listening to Global Top 40 Radio. You know, Nexus doesn't bat an eye about it. He's, he's even a speed reader. They'd never even attempt to explain that one. I guess they were all hoping we didn't notice, but... Mm. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Busted. Yeah. That seems to dispose of all the men in your party. All. Excepting yourself, of course. Me. Oh, I wouldn't dream of taking on such a burden... A simple man like me. Smith's hubris has him convinced that he's manipulating Nexus, but actually the alien is leading Smith right into his trap. Yeah, this part is golden. We can see by the knowing side glances that Nexus gives that he's only letting out a little more line before setting the hook. (laughs) (laughs) Scanning up at the sky, Nexus lightly objects. But you said yourself you were descended from kings. Remotely, dear friend. Only remotely, But I'm sure you have those peculiar virtues required of kings. A compendium of virtues, if I say so myself. We uh, might do worse in selecting a king. Surely you couldn't be considering modest, unassuming me. Ah, but we could. Smith must feel he has the upper hand because now he keeps his back towards the alien. We should point out the beautiful blocking of this shot is similar to last week's episode in The Traitor, where the haggling is going on between the traitor and Smith over the robot. Both men are in the shot, but Smith is in the foreground facing us, while the haggler is in the background also facing us. This allows us to view both actors simultaneously, so we can see both sides of their faces as opposed to a profile shot where we're, you know we only get to see half of each of their face. It's also a better way to show it than to cut away at close-ups that focus on the person talking but deny us the opportunity to see the other actors reacting uh, with their expressions, unless, of course, you cut away the second person when that happens. So the foreground-background shot works great for this kind of bargaining scene. It also gives us a, a sense of depth that makes the image look more 3D while also allowing actors to hide their facial expressions from the other person, even though we're watching it. In both episodes, Smith is up close and looking sly and calculating, often glancing knowingly to the side while lying through his teeth. But we also get to see the negotiator's expression behind him, like the one that Nexus is giving us behind Smith's back. He's tempting Smith with a lifetime of riches and power, while Smith thinks he's manipulating the negotiator. We can clearly see it's the reverse that's actually true. Oh, yeah, it's very effective, and I like the way you describe it all. You know, what's interesting, too, is there's some pretty long takes in there, you know, without a cutaway for longer than they would do today in TV. So I, I really like that. It surely added to the whole drama of the scene. It really made you think, <laughs> it really gave you the impression of what you're, what you're talking about, for sure. 
Well, I think part of it is that they're able to uh, animate it in a way by having movement going on in the background. You know, people are so prone to action. They don't like to watch a stagnant shot. If you watch a commercial today, there's something going on every second. If there's a 30-second commercial, there'll be 30 to 60 cuts mm-hmm. in that 30-second commercial. Right. So right. here, uh, you know, it's uh, TV hasn't gotten to that point in the 1960s, but they're already starting to learn, you know, shake it up a little bit. And in this case, Nexus is moving around behind him. So you've got that action going on in the shot. It really works well. It's, it's, it's a beauty to watch. It sure is. Cutting back to Nexus, he says, In fact, the more I consider it, the more I think you were made for the job, Dr. Smith. How uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Do you mean it? I do. Oh, the pain of it. The royal pain of it all. I accept. There will, of course, be a proper coronation. Naturally. And I shall be able to receive my friends in regal splendor. If you wish. I do indeed. I can't wait to see their eyes bulge when they... Look here. There are no catches to this, are there? I assure you. You will be crowned King of Andronica before we leave this planet. And now, may I call you my liege lord and king? Oh, you may. You may indeed. Your Majesty. The momentous occasion hits Dr. Smith. He places his palm on his chest, gulps, then declares himself... King Zachary I. The answers and flattery seem to convince Smith that he's won the lottery, but I couldn't help thinking, Smith, (laughs) this isn't the first time you've been tricked. Have you forgotten how you sold your soul to the traitor for a turkey dinner last week? What made him so ready to accept the crown, Kurt? Lane, you're being way too (laughs) suspicious. He took special precautions with Nexus that he never took with the traitor. He asked him point blank, are there any catches? And he was told, (laughs) no. (laughs) Well, sort of, although now that I think about it, Nexus didn't really answer that question, yes or no. But I'm sure if he were a con man, he would fess up at that point because, you know, con men are... They're not going to lie to you about something like that, are they? (laughs) Besides, this wasn't a turkey. This was a turkey and gravy. (laughs) Well, we'll have to wait until we return from station identification to find out if, in fact, there are any strings attached to this deal. Space will continue after station identification. TV2 Chicago. When we come back from the break to start Act 2, it's later that night. Will's returned home and decided it's high time he let the others in on Smith's little secret. Standing before his parents and the robot in the upper deck of the ship, the boy retells the whole story, starting with the crown, the alien search for a king, and ending with Dr. Smith's acceptance of the Andronican throne. It sounds fantastic, and Mom even asks him if he's sure it wasn't just a dream. More like a nightmare, as we'll see, but he's adamant. This really happened, and Will's clearly worried that Dr. Smith's once more gotten himself into trouble. It seems to happen every seven days, you know? It's weird. <laughs> it's weird like that, isn't it? Yeah. Just then, Don climbs up the ladder and reports that, sure enough, Smith's not in his cabin. John asks Will to confirm again that the doctor agreed to become a king. (laughs) 
Is that really so hard to believe, Professor? <laughs> be hard to believe if he didn't. Yeah. Yep. Shaking his head, John says, Now what kind of mess has he gotten himself into this time? Just wait, Professor. Suddenly the robot announces, Danger! Danger! Alien artifact approaching! Everyone's attention is drawn to the viewport, where we see Nexus approaching the ship. The men break out the lasers and rush to the airlock, just in case things get dicey. By the way, Pay attention to the robot. As he rolls out of frame, old Bob May is really working that bubble head to emphasize that he's on high alert, too. But something I didn't catch the first time I watched this was B9 used the word alien artifact, not mm-hmm. just alien. Yep. And that indicated to me that B9 had detected something was not quite right with Nexus and the Andronicans. But for some reason, he doesn't elaborate or even report it to the Robinsons. We won't learn exactly what that is till later in the story, but I thought that was an interesting little foreshadowing, Kurt. Yes, it indicates that he knows not only what they are, but he also knows where they are, okay? Oddly enough, he seems to lose this ability later on in the episode when it matters most. Kind of like the force field, it only works when the writers <laughs> need it to work, you know? But but I like the fact that they gave us that little hint. It's almost like a little Easter egg, you know? You don't, you don't notice it the first time, but then when you go back, you're like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. he did say he was Artifact. Yeah, yeah. As Nexus slowly approaches the ship, Maureen gasps, It's a man. Will says, It's the man Dr. Smith was talking to. But where's Smith? John's ready to find out. He and Don, laser rifles at the ready, open the airlock hatch and are greeted by the tall alien emissary who's wearing a mannequin-like expression. Speaking in flat tones, Nexus informs the castaways that they are all commanded under peril of royal displeasure to present themselves for judgment the next day at the final audience of His Majesty Zachary I before he leaves the planet to assume his royal duties as King of Andronica. It's a lot to take in and everyone except John seems astounded. Without missing a beat, the professor answers that they'll be there. At that, Nexus acknowledges with a bow of his head, salutes with a fist over his heart, and then departs. After the hatch closes, a confused Major West asks John why he told the alien a thing like that. Studying the visitor as he strides out of the campsite, John distractedly answers, because we will be there. Uh Uh-huh. Kind of neat how John delivers that line with his back to the camera, looking out the spaceport to watch the other guy leave. You hardly mm-hmm. ever see that on television because actors are usually mugging for the camera and they, they don't want to turn away from it. In fact, most actors in plays and TV do this thing called a stage turn, which I always thought looks really phony. It's where two people are talking and one of them walks behind the other person, but instead of the, the person in the foreground you know, turning to watch the guy as he walks behind him, he actually turns away from that guy and faces us uh, hmm. to, to follow him because he doesn't want his back to turn to the audience, you know, which makes sense if you're doing a play or whatever. But for TV, you know, you're trying to be realistic there. You're just reminding us that the camera's there the whole time. So it always drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So that was cool that he had his back to the camera in this case. That's Yeah, it's like he was completely oblivious to the fact that the camera was there, which is the way it should be. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's a good thing they decided to attend that final audience because in the next scene, they're certainly going to get their money's worth. It's next morning. We're outside the Andronican ship where a royal festival area has been set up and it's quite a sight. 
The area is flanked by several tall, ornate flaming torches and royal guards. There's a banquet table near the entrance of the ship, as well as a throne, of course. But the focus is on an ornate, covered chaise lounge, where the reclining King Zachary I is being attended to by his court of Andronican ladies. Wearing royal robes and that beautiful crown on his head, he seems perfectly at home as he's being fanned, fed, and fawned over by those blonde beauties. Finally, Smith is in his element. Has <laughs> <laughs> it long last. The Robinsons are all smiles and open mouths as they approach this astounding display of luxury. is approaching your majesty there must be a little physician left in the king because at first he tells nexus to let them wait (laughs) without any magazines just like my doctor always does yes a grape deal after taking another grape deal the king finally decides to get out of bed and greet his visitors but comically he needs a hand from nexus on account of his extremely delicate back The pain, the pain. With his lieutenant's help and a few groans, Zachary manages to rise and relocate to his throne so that the ceremony can properly begin. Seated with his court of female attenders and Nexus flanking him, he has the air of a man who's been waiting for this moment his whole life. Eyebrows raised in anticipation, (laughs) the grinning smith listens as Nexus formally announces... His most exalted majesty, defender of rights, sword and buckler of liberties, most sublime and willing sacrifice, Zachary I, King of Andronica. Hi, Dr. Smith. In the future, you will address us as your majesty. Come here, boy. <laughs> Talk about irony. Smith, the defender of rights and sword and buckler of liberties. Hilarious. But did you catch the line, willing and sublime sacrifice? Yes. That I may did. be more than the symbolic flattery. Beware, Zachary. Danger, danger. Yeah. My little friend, my good companion in the days of my adversity, I have chosen you from among the rest to accompany me on my road to glory. I don't understand, Your Majesty. I shall take you with me. You shall be named heir apparent to my throne. Now, what do you think of that? You know, i got to take a, a moment here to just point out, why was he assuming that Will would be a good heir apparent? I mean, he's got these four beautiful girls with him. He might want to have children. Is there something going on we don't know about? <laughs> oh, man. I'd rather stay with the rest. Let's not be hasty, my boy. I suppose I could find something for them to do. Major West might make an excellent court jester. That'll be the day. What did you say? Come on, Smith, get off of that chair. You're making a fool of yourself. Guard, fetch us yon varlet's head. Unwise to provoke an incident, Your Majesty. What? What? Time to depart. I see. Our advisor tells us that it is best at this time to avoid an incident. Therefore, we shall graciously spare your life and your head. But do not tempt our anger further. Yeah, but did you notice that Don dispensed with the usual insults after (laughs) nearly getting his head amputated? I guess he decided Smith's bodyguards may not be as easy to bully around as Smith is. (laughs) Good point, good point. Well, Dad's right, Dr. Smith. Why don't you come home with us? I'll take you fishing. Dear little friend, do I detect a trace of moisture in your eyes? I do believe you will miss me, and I shall miss you. 
But destiny calls King Zachary, I must away. John tries one more time, shouting, Dr. Smith, enough. The audience is ended. And with that, the royal ladies rise, and the guards lift up the king on his throne. With a look of great satisfaction on his stately face, King Zachary I is carried up the ramp and into the Andronican spaceship to the sound of regal trumpets. The Robinsons pause to watch what may be the last sight they'll ever see of their old friend, Dr. Smith. Will's upset, and he asks Dad, can't they do something? John answers, no, son, I'm afraid Dr. Smith has made his decision. Maureen adds that she hopes he'll be happy in his new life, wherever that is. As the royal party disappears into the alien ship, John slaps Will on the back saying, let's go, and they all head back to the Jupiter. I suspect John and Don are the two most relieved in the family to have finally found a place to ditch their not-so-youthful ward, King Zachary I. <laughs> I wonder what sort of celebration they're going to have. Let's pop the champagne corks. <laughs> With the act nearing a climax, the royal party enters the main deck of the Andronican structure. We finally get a good look at the interior. It's another black-walled limbo set, but it's suitably adorned with a plethora of props that add interest. To start with, by the entrance bulkhead, which I recognize from the inside of the keeper's ship, there's one of those cylindrical control stands with a flashing jello mold control on top. Okay, quick disclaimer, those are technically not called jello molds. They're known as flower frogs, as Bill Hedges, the Lost in Space prop collector, told me before. But it's going to be hard for me not to call them jello molds, since that's what I've been calling them since I was a kid. So forgive me, fans. Shall I destroy? Uh, wait. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Anyway, continuing the tour, the room also has several of the standard sheer fabric-covered columns with flashing Christmas tree lights spread around. Off to the side, there appears to be a lab table with a high school chemistry set complete with Bunsen burner on it. And in the center of the chamber, there's this pair of long exam tables, each equipped with a clear half-cylindrical plastic console cover. Hmm, well, we'll find out about those later. Then we also get a glimpse of what appears to be a large flat screen monitor suspended on one side of the area. Weirdly, that screen is framed by a wide band of rough finished rock, but uh, it does kind of look cool. Now, another thing that I learned reading author and listener Paul Monroe's 1989 book, The Lost in Space Handbook, is that near the back of this area, you can see part of the old derelict spaceship model that's been redressed with some flashing lights and a few other doodads to become another piece of alien hardware, which I thought was a nice catch. I didn't notice it at first. I actually recognized that right off at first thinking, no, he wouldn't dare. But then I remembered Irwin recycles everything and I realized, but of course he did. You mm. know, I try to be amused by all the recycling, like running gags rather than let it bother me. But I have to admit, it does irk me whenever they take what is supposed to be some giant, awesome monster or spaceship and then reduce him down to a fraction of their original size and forever spoil that sense of awe that they originally produced when I first saw it. They did that when they reused the giant Cyclops as that little mini-me monster in the Keeper. Remember that? And they're doing it now by using that super cool derelict ship as some sort of pint-sized control panel. What's next on Irwin's shrink them down to size chopping block? Is he going to downsize and degrade the giants from Land of the Giants and make them play 
puny little roles as human-sized aliens in Lost in Space? No, no, he wouldn't dare, would he? (laughs) Just wait. (laughs) Well, speaking of recycling, topping it all off in this room is the flashing fusion core ring again, Kurt. (laughs) But this time it does get the cast credit, I hope. (laughs) Uh, I'll have to double check on that. Well, it's suspended in this case directly overhead in the dead center of the room. Yeah, and you'll see its reflection a lot, too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I like the way it's used here. It's, it's, it's a nice touch. Well, once the party is all securely inside the ship, the guards lower Smith's throne to the floor. The ladies take their place at King Zachary's side and return to their routine of attending to his majesty, which, which includes buffing his kingly nails, of all things, <laughs> yawning and emitting several oh-dears, Smith's worn out from all of his royal exertions. It's time to relax and restore his vital forces. He removes the crown from his weary head, cautioning the god to be careful. <laughs> be careful with it. Then he asks Nexus to bring him a chalice of refreshment. And <laughs> you could tell that Harris was having a ball playing the king. I mean, he's really, you know, going over the top with the extra rolling of the R's. And that was funny. Yeah, when I'm watching this, I'm thinking, this is really, you know, all he actually wanted the Robinsons to do for him. You know, if they had just behaved this way on the ship, he would have gotten along with them swimmingly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So true. Nexus hears and obeys his liege lord, but as he steps over to the side table for the wine, the music becomes ominous, suggesting all may not be as it seems. That's when the camera cuts away to a close-up of one of those flashing jello molds, I mean flower frogs, and a familiar fur-covered hand reaches out of the shadows and passes over the control. Suddenly, all of the Andronicans freeze in place, again as if a switch had been flipped. The room becomes deathly quiet, all except for some very creepy music that I guess Smith can't hear because if he could, he'd already be out the door. Impatient, he tells Nexus to hurry with that wine. Our royal throats are dry and adds to one of his beauties. Don't stop fanning, my dear. But for some reason, no one's responding. Even the manicurist has stopped buffing his nails. Oh, the horror. (laughs) (laughs) It only takes the king a moment to realize that something's not quite right, but he can't tell exactly what. A look of concern crosses his face, so he rises out of the throne asking, Is something wrong? Still getting no reply, he steps over to command a response from the blank-faced Nexus, who, despite Zachary's threat of severe punishment, is still as a statue and silent as a corpse. Unnerved, he softly repeats, Nexus? Nexus? Still getting nothing but dead-eyed stares from his adjutant, the king begins to circle the room, imploring the rest of his subjects to answer him, but they're all acting as dead as coffin nails, too. Smith becomes desperate now. There's a tone of confused panic creeping into his voice. What in the world is going on here? Won't somebody speak? That's when we finally hear a voice off screen echo back. Your Majesty. Relieved that not everyone is in this ridiculous position and condition, he turns around to face whose ever voice we heard. But instead of another loyal subject... He's confronted by a sight so unexpected and apparently so repulsive that it's too much for Smith to handle. He screams in horror (laughs) and collapses unconscious to the floor. 
And that's when we get a really good look at that crazy, hairy alien master who stepped out from the shadows to reveal himself. So now, Kurt, I have to ask, and I think I know your answer to this, you weren't as repelled and horrified by that alien as Smith seemed to be, were you? No, no, I was repelled and I was horrified, but at how horrible it was as far as makeup is concerned. (laughs) But I could still tell, yes, that guy is from Land of the Giants. Sure enough, you know, just, but hey, let's look at the bright side. It was better than silver grease paint covering his face, right? You know, I guess so. But, you know, he always looked like Wolfman Jack to me because he's got that big bushy wig, the the beard that's not too convincing, the mustache and the unibrow. And just like his hands, there's some serious manscaping that needs to go on with his entire face. And to top it all off, he doesn't look like he's getting much sleep because he's got these big dark circles under his eyes. And, you know, his outfit's not that remarkable either. It just looks like this light colored burlap Buddhist monk's robes without any hood. But of course... He's also got those famous alien communication medallions draped around his neck. So at least he's got his bling with him, I suppose. Yeah, real advanced. Just like the bling wrappers here on Earth have. Only theirs either flashes or has a, <laughs> has a compartment for hiding their stash. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> well, sometime later, the alien master walks back into the chamber of the ship carrying a silver Erlenmeyer flask. The camera will continue to feature that flask prominently as the scene continues. With a wave of his hand over the jello mold, he closes the hatch behind him. He approaches the seated King Zachary, who we can see is strapped down tight into his throne. All of the frozen Andronicans are nowhere to be seen. It's just the hairy alien and Smith, who's totally at his mercy. Wolfman Jack bows with an exaggerated flourish. How is your majesty feeling? Smith's terrified and screams, Go away! Leave me alone! Speaking with what sounded to me like an exaggerated Russian accent, he taunts Smith, So, you do not like the look of your devoted subjects, huh? (laughs) Confused, Smith repeats, Subjects? The alien explains that he is Andronikin, and Smith is king of Andronika. Still confused, Smith asks, but what about the human-looking Andronicans, Nexus and the others? Boris explains that they are non-personalities. He goes on that they are all androids, artificial beings. He made them to look human so that Smith would agree to become king. With a glimmer of hope in his eye, Smith clarifies, That I really am king? Oh yes, assures Boris. He really is king for a festival of sacrifice. (laughs) That word sacrifice has Smith worried. The alien begins to circle the chamber as he continues. Big festival. Everybody come. Drink glug. Make Slimov. (laughs) Drink glug? Make Slimov? Very happy. Then make sacrifice. (laughs) Gulping, Smith nervously asks, Uh, One of your quaint religious rites, no doubt, purely symbolic in nature? No, no. Sacrifice king, so everybody be happy. Well, prosperous in year to come. Sacrifice king? (laughs) Now, standing directly behind the creeped out doctor, the alien leans his face down next to Smith's, totally invading his personal space. Both men's heads are filling up the frame. He pats Smith's cheeks with his hairy meat hooks as he relishes, telling the squirming king what fate awaits him. Skin him, stuff him, very good stuffing. Last many years, 10,000 years from now, you look the same. Stand in immortal hall of kings, very great honor. 
No! No, let me out of here! Too bad, so sad, says Boris, rubbing it in. He reminds Dr. Smith that he already signed the contract accepting the throne, and it's already been recorded in the Hall of Records for the Council of Planets. In short, it's all perfectly legal. (laughs) All that's left to do is wait for their ship to come and take them back to Andronica. Hmm. But again, we're back to this controversy. I thought this was their ship. Okay, now I'm confused again. Uh, they should have called it their base camp. <laughs> yes. Well, anyway. For a moment, I thought that the alien was satisfied he'd tormented Smith enough because he steps over to that rock-framed big-screen TV on the wall and announces that they'll see what Smith's friends are doing. Waving his hand once more over the jello mold, he activates the monitor. We're shown a view of the lower deck galley on the Jupiter 2 where John, Don, and Marine are having a coffee break while the robot stands by observing in the background. John matter-of-factly states, Well, I guess that's the last we'll see of Dr. Smith. Oh, what a callous dismissal of one who has shared the dangers and vicissitudes of their daily life. The alien seems to be studying Smith's reaction and misery, so I guess I was wrong. He's not done tormenting the doctor. But the expression he had didn't strike me as purely sadistic. It was more like he was a judge who was dispensing well-deserved punishment to a serious offender. How did that alien's manner strike you, Kurt? Yeah, he, he did seem like he was justifying the selection process, almost like he was expecting Smith to come around and agree. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm a scandal and I deserve this, but that's not in Smith's makeup. <laughs> no. The alien and Smith continue to eavesdrop on the Robinsons' conversation. Marine can't help worry about Dr. Smith, but Don's not bothered in the least. Don't worry, he says, no matter where Smith's headed, you can bet he lands on his feet. The robot interjects, Correction, Dr. Smith will not depart. And that gets everyone's attention. What does he mean? The robot explains that acting under the prime directive, he made certain that the alien's communication link with their mothership was disabled. Oh, bless you, my dear, dear friend. The robot elaborates that he's programmed to protect human life against their wishes. Although I noticed that that prime directive didn't stop the robot from trying to kill Will and every member of the family. But (laughs) details, details. Yes, yes. Then he recommends that they study the alien's psychology and motives with reference to rights of sacrificial kings. Hmm. You know, it's remarkable that the robot has this whole thing pretty much figured out. And for once, he's beaten Professor Robinson in the know-it-all department. But for heaven's sake, why did he wait until now to let everyone else in on the secret? Clearly, he also knew before that the Andronicans were androids because, as we mentioned earlier, he called Nexus an artifact. But no one seemed to catch that. Why did you think B9 held his tongue, Kurt? Well, maybe he's trying to teach the Robinsons a lesson about why they need to start including him in their discussions. They keep treating him like a potted plant. They never ask his opinion, so he'll just let them drive up to the very edge of the cliff before (laughs) mentioning to them that the bridge is out. That or else the writers need him to keep quiet so that they can surprise us with the plot twist. (laughs) Yeah. Or both. Either one. Either one. A, B, or C. All of the above. Yes, yes. Well, hearing that the robot has taken action on his behalf raises Smith's spirits, but with his voice still cracking, he says, You see? They're suspicious of you. Highly suspicious. They'll never let you go while you're holding me like this. Never. Unfazed by Smith's warning, the hairy alien stares blankly back at Smith for a moment, then silently steps across the room towards one of those two parallel examination tables. 
The restrained Dr. Smith cranes his neck around to see where the alien's going and what he's up to. The alien opens the slab's clear plastic cover, which is hinged like a coffin lid, and begins preparing it for something, or dare I say someone. Unable to bear the suspense, Smith shrieks, What are you doing? The alien pauses. Looking at Smith, he bellows, Your people want Smith, I give them Smith. That's put King Zachary back into a complete state of despair. Wallowing in a sea of self-pity, he turns toward the camera and moans, No, no, please, please. We'll have to wait until we come back from this break to find out what Wolfman Boris has in store for the next sacrificial king of Andronica. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Woman! You're in trouble, big trouble. What now? You've switched margarines. It was on sale. But this margarine, it tastes... There's still some Imperial left. There's my Imperial. Corn oil, that flavor's so good, it makes me feel like a king. Woman never served the king a middle-class margarine. It's Imperial taste. Or war. Try Imperial. Stick form or new soft spread. When we return from the commercial break to start Act 3, we're still inside the Andronican's Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Smith, apparently unconscious, is lying on the exam slab. His midsection is covered by some kind of high-tech blanket. The shaggy alien closes the plastic cover over Smith's body. But if you look closely, you'll notice that he's not fully encased in that space-age coffin lid. In fact, it's completely open from the doctor's shoulders, so that his head is fully exposed. Well, this feature of the prop, much like the open top of the keeper's cages, was an accommodation for Jonathan Harris's claustrophobia. There were just certain things that the actor wouldn't compromise on, and being confined in a small space, even a transparent one, simply wouldn't be tolerated. You know, but at least he scooted down inside the second tube to confine his space for a few seconds. Or did you notice that? Yes. He had to for reasons I'll explain when we get to it. So keep that thought in mind for a minute or two. Mm. Well, satisfied that his subject is secure, the alien begins to move from one bank of controls to another, waving his hands over various blinking lights and other futuristic-looking equipment. The room comes alive with sound effects that indicate something interesting is being cooked up. Finally, he's made it full circle around the room to the other slab that's sitting parallel from the one that Sleeping Beauty Smith is on. This one is identical in every way, except for the fact that it's empty. Hmm. As the music becomes more sinister, the alien closes that clear console lid, then once more waves his hands across a control device on top of the cover. Almost at once, the empty chamber begins to fill with white gas that's starting to obscure our view through the transparent hood. The camera cuts away quickly, John and Don, both armed with their laser rifles, are approaching the nighttime Andronican ship with Will tagging along as well. The three reach the edge of the clearing and crouch behind a large boulder for cover, well within sight of the ship's main hatch. Don's also carrying a satchel full of explosive charges and suggests they try to blast open the alien ship using one. But Professor Robinson has another idea. He says he's going to try to give the Andronicans a chance to settle things peacefully. Shouting at the top of his lungs, John warns the aliens that they have five minutes to surrender Dr. Smith 
or they'll start blasting with their lasers. The camera then cuts back inside the ship, where apparently the shaggy alien can hear John's warning through the ship's hull. A knowing look crosses the alien's hairy face, and he rapidly makes a few more hand gestures that I'm guessing are designed to hurry this whole process along. Then things really start cooking because that empty chamber is now totally filled with white cosmic gas, and with a few more subtle hand gestures from Boris, it seems the soup's just about ready. There are a few more quick cuts between Smith, the alien, the blinking lights around the room, and then back to that gas-filled chamber. Finally, something appears to be materializing under the clear plastic hood, and sure enough, as the gas slowly dissolves away, we're shown the image of an identical, duplicate, unconscious Dr. Smith lying in a state of peaceful repose. A look of satisfaction comes across the alien's face. He moves back around to the slab containing our original Dr. Smith, who's still out like a baby. He opens the plastic lid, pulls back that space-age blanket, then taps the doctor on the shoulder, which causes him to stir. Smith appears disoriented for a moment, but then starts to regain his bearings. Then the alien moves to that large control device that's made from the derelict model and depowers it. He shuffles around to the duplicate's chamber, opens that cover, and taps the doppelganger Smith on its shoulder. Smith's twin awakes instantly. He stares back at the shaggy alien leaning over his face, raises his head, then slowly turns towards the original Smith. Okay, now stop the presses. What you just described there, that last part of what you just described, that is a beautiful illusion shot in one continuous unedited shot from one Dr. Smith to the other, and it deserves real appreciation. If you look closely, you'll notice that both tubes circle around the neck, and they're open above the shoulder so Harris can breathe easily for his claustrophobia. But they also have what looks like clear plastic shoulder pads that continue past the neck for about a half a foot or so up the table, making it look like the tube is longer when it's viewed from the side. So when the second Smith materializes in the second tube, he's actually scooted a little farther down the tube so that his head really does appear to be completely encased in the tube. This is a very quick shot, but it's important because the tube starts out empty, fills with fog, then it dissolves to reveal the second Dr. Smith within that tube. If his head had been sticking out of the second tube, the fog effect would not have worked because the fog is concealing the body and there would be nothing to hide the top of his head during the transformation, so it needed to be longer at that particular moment. The real magic occurs, though, in the uncut camera pan from table number one where the Andronican awakens the real Dr. Smith. Then we follow the alien as he moves across the room, meddles with the controls, giving Smith just a little bit of time to sneak behind the cameraman from table number one over to table number two, lie down and have the glass lowered again before the alien moves over to him and lifts up the glass to awaken the duplicate Dr. Smith. That's all done in one uncut shot expertly executed and it really sells the illusion oh and i need to point this out this didn't cost erwin any special optical effects except the dissolve from the fog to smith in that very short cutaway and dissolves are one of the cheapest effects much cheaper than the electrical bolt animations or laser blasts that he he likes to cut corners on that's a really good shot and that's a great explanation of the whole thing because it is impressive i do agree with that 
Well, the camera cuts back over to the groggy original Smith, who's still lying on the slab, but somehow manages to raise his head and stares wide-eyed at a near-perfect copy of himself. And I mean perfect, because not only did the hairy alien make a copy that has the same body, face, hair, but he's wearing the exact same clothes. Watch and ring as Dr. Smith. Good heavens! This is impossible! The duplicate wearing a gentle face repeats back Smith's words, but in a measured, even tone. The alien is thrilled. He claps his furry hands in glee. Pretty good, huh? Friends want Smith, they get Smith. Traumatized by what he's witnessing, Smith tells the alien that he'll never get away with it. Anyone will be able to see that this is an imposter. The duplicate Smith retorts calmly, Just whom are you calling an imposter? You mere image of myself? He even talks like me! Still leaning over the duplicate, the alien answers, Exact copy! Then he turns to that copycat Smith and issues instructions. Your friends are waiting for you. You know what to do. With a smile on his face, the copycat Smith answers, Of course. In a flash, he glances back at our original, then springs off the table and strides towards the hatch. With a wave of his hand over the jello mold, the door opens and the duplicate purposely saunters out of the alien spaceship as our original Dr. Smith looks on in horror at this latest dismal turn of events. After he's departed, the shaggy alien moves back around to where the shocked Smith is still reclined. Pausing at the doctor's side, he leans his face down again into Dr. Smith's personal space and with mock concern asks, Perhaps you'd like to see, huh? The alien steps over to the large, rock-framed monitor and with a wave of his hand, activates it, displaying our castaways, guns ready, waiting for Dr. Smith. Suddenly, Will yells, Dad, look! With the act nearing an end, the camera cuts back to the Andronican ship's entrance and the main hatch is slowly being raised. When it's finally open, Will exclaims, It's Dr. Smith! Hands folded together in front of his waist, wearing a serene expression. The doppelganger Smith prances down the ramp of the ship. His three would-be rescuers come out from behind their cover and rush over to greet him. Well, that was easy. It appears that their gambit paid off. John asks the imposter if he's all right. He replies, why, of course, there's no cause for alarm. Cutting back inside, though, our Smith is incensed at the deception. We'll never buy that. Don't be so sure, Dr. Smith. The alien seems to take pride in how effective his duplicate Smith is interacting with the Earthlings. But R. Smith's in agony. Will tells the duplicate that he was worried about him. To which the copy says, Of course you were, but quite unnecessarily. Smith's watching as his chances of getting out of here slip away. Little fool, can't you tell he's a fraud? Apparently not. Then Don asks the copy why the Andronicans let him go. To which he answers in a very unsmith-like manner. It was my own decision. I decided that ruining a kingdom as fast as Andronica was far beyond my poor capabilities. <laughs> mm. With that, the fake Smith starts to march out of the area, but he's stopped mid-stride by Professor Robinson, who asks him where he's going. He answers innocently, "Why right back to the spaceship. John furrows his brow a bit, then points in the opposite direction. The ship is that way. Hmm. But the copycat Smith covers as well as the original one does. Without missing a beat, he says, Why, so it is. How silly of me. Mm. He grabs Will by the shoulder, telling him to come along, my boy, and the two friends depart the area. John and Major West linger for a moment as they watch Smith and Will walk off. Don shakes his head, 
Something seems a little fishy, but they can't quite figure out what it is. Still, Don chuckles as he repeats Smith's line about ruling Andronica being far beyond his poor capabilities. That's the first hint of modesty he's ever heard from Dr. Zachary Smith. Now, that should have been a giant red warning flag, but to be fair, this whole sequence of events has been a little more than fantastic. John has a serious expression on his face, but doesn't respond directly to Don's comment. Instead, the two men strike out back for the Jupiter II, seemingly glad that this whole mess has been settled without bloodshed and with the trouble-prone Dr. Smith safely back among their party. Inside the spaceship, the shaggy alien, arms crossed, studies his captive's reactions contentedly. While for his part, Smith's focused intently on the images of John and Don leaving the area and his precious skin to the tender mercies of the Andronicans. Seeing this unfold and feeling utterly helpless to stop it, Smith's now apoplectic. Come back here, you idiots! Come back! Can't you see it's a trick? Come back! With that, the alien waves his hand once more over the jello mold control. The image of his friends disappear, and Smith's left believing that his last hope to escape from the clutches of the Andronicans may have disappeared as well. Is he now fated to wind up skinned, stuffed, and preserved for 10,000 years to come on some far-off alien planet? As the camera closes in on the pathetic face of our original Dr. Zachary Smith, he continues to repeat in agony, oh, oh. But we'll have to wait until we return from this word from our sponsor to see what destiny awaits King Zachary I. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... Support for this non-profit podcast is made in part by... Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com. When we return from the break to start the final act... Dawn has broken back at the Jupiter-2 campsite. As the airlock hatch opens, early riser Marine walks outside the ship. She pauses on the ramp to take a deep breath of the fresh morning air, only to be stunned by an unexpected sight. The camp table has been beautifully set for breakfast, complete with tablecloth and a large centerpiece of fresh-cut flowers. Confusion quickly gives way to delight. Now wearing a smile, she calls out for Judy and Penny. When the daughters come scrambling out of the ship, she asks, Now which one of you did this? Both girls are just as surprised as mom and tell her it wasn't their doing. That's when they hear the lively voice of a very chipper Dr. Smith striding back into camp carrying two pails filled with fresh produce from the garden. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Oh, hi, Dr. Smith. What are you doing up so early? Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I've been up for hours. Oh, good heavens, half the day is gone and nothing's been done. Bursting with energy, he picks up a mixing bowl and begins whisking up something delicious. I do hope you ladies don't mind that I undertook to prepare the breakfast. Oh, did you do all this? Blushing, he nods back yes. Not wishing to linger on their praise, though, he quickly encourages the ladies to take their seats. Now come along, my dears. Do sit down, madam. Do sit down. (laughs) Lovely. Ah, good morning, Professor Robinson and Major West. I trust you both slept well. Well, 
What's going on here? Well, Dr. Smith prepared breakfast. Oh, please, please, dear lady, let us not be formal. Why don't you just call me Zack? <laughs> Don's mouth falls open at the suggestion, and he involuntarily repeats, Zack. Zack. <laughs> oh, okay, that's the way you want it, Zack. Thank you, dear, dear Major. Do sit down and have your breakfast. <laughs> Smith is channeling the most overused... Well, I'll go ahead and say it. Homosexual stereotypes here. I mean, he's cooking fancy food for everyone, cutting flowers, offering to do all the chores. And then there's that so cheerful in the morning you could just kill him routine that he's doing. <laughs> but it, it, but the best is yet to come. Stay tuned for the piece de resistance. <laughs> yes. I have a feeling I know where you're going with this one, <laughs> Oh, dear, there is so much to be done today. Professor Robinson, I have an idea about developing that new field of atomic ore. Perhaps I should run on ahead and start the preliminary work. I don't believe what I'm hearing. I always thought work was a bad word with you, Dr. Smith. Oh, good heavens, no, child. Work is the foundation of good character. The harder the work, the better the character. As if all this wasn't enough to convince the Robinsons that something both strange and miraculous has happened to Dr. Smith... Just then, Will and the robot emerge from the ship's entrance. They pause on the ramp as the happy doctor greets the dear boy with a hearty good morning. Good morning, dear boy. Why don't you just sit down and let Daddy Zack bring your breakfast? Daddy Zack? Yes, Daddy Zack. I feel like a second father to you. <laughs> See, I told you, I'm surprised the censors let him get away with that double entendre. Who's your daddy? <laughs> but back then, it was a much more innocent time, you know? Uh, it, it must have been, because this <laughs> this really does kind of scream that. <laughs> to yeah. You. And I know people are going to be mad that we said it, but for crying out loud, I mean, how can you not notice that now? No, no. Well, today they'd play it up, I think. They would actually make that obvious right even more obvious right. i think they would yeah. so but See, it's interesting because there was a time when it was so verboten that you dare not even think it and then sure. there was a time when it was sort of like well you're kind of getting acclimated to it so you can kind of suggest it and it's sort of funny and then it goes into it's evolved into this thing like okay so what about it why you got a problem with that you know suddenly now it's, it's gone 180 degrees and if you notice it in a bad way you're the bad guy you know whereas yeah. you go back 30 or 40 years ago and the bad guy was whoever was writing it or acting it it was like how dare you <laughs> well this is a period when this sort of thing i think was kind of transitioning because you exactly. you also had actors like paul lind who clearly mm -hmm. played on that stereotype and uh, what's the guy's name? Oh, from, uh, Nelson Riley. Yeah, from Match Game and some other shows. Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even as a kid, I kind of knew there was something a little different about that guy, but it was funny. And I think, yes, it's stereotyping and so on, but I suppose for, for Dr. Smith, it has to remain his little secret. Yeah, and you know, they call it an alien artifact in the episode here. Now this is just kind of like a cultural artifact, really. It really is. It really is. So, yeah. Throw stones at us if you want, but I think it's it's hard not to notice. So, Well, Will's still trying to process all this as he takes his seat at the table. Daddy Zack prattles on, apologizing that the cooking's been quite hasty this morning. Oh dear, I'm afraid the cooking has been quite hasty this morning. All I can offer you is an omelette au fino. But tomorrow, I promise you eggs, Benedict. Oh, 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 hey, Daddy Zack, thank you. Hey, wait. Oh, here. 
Will somebody please tell me what's going on here? The robot who's been silently taking this in by the hatch gives the only possible answer. It does not compute. (laughs) Nothing computes anymore. What do you mean? You have changed. Yes, I have. And for the best, don't you agree? Well, next we're at the work site. The robot is standing by with Will who's seated on a rock watching as Daddy Zack who's sporting a hard hat and a work apron, is busy digging a new irrigation trench by shovel. Daddy Zack sighs with appreciation, telling Will what a marvelous help their mechanical friend has been to them all. They have so very much to be grateful for. The boy is still befuddled by all this and asks Daddy Zack, What did they do to you in that alien ship, Dr. Smith? Why, anal probe, of course. (laughs) No, no, no. Okay, we're going to lose the PG-13 right here. <laughs> Please, Daddy Zack, it gives me such a glorious feeling of togetherness. Will relents, addressing him as Daddy Zack, again asking what the aliens did to him. Really nothing, my dear boy. Merely awakened me to the potentials of the world in which I live. To my own capability of doing good. To the wonder of scattering a little sunshine as I travel through life. Uh, scattering sunshine. As Will says, he sure has changed. The robot's bubblehead springs up suddenly, and he abruptly declares, My memory banks do not identify you as Dr. Zachary Smith. Daddy Zack smiles back at his mechanical friend and gently chides, Do I look like Dr. Smith? You stand like Dr. Smith. Do I talk like Dr. Smith? The tonal quality is identical. Then I must be Dr. Smith. That does not necessarily compute. Never mind, says the faux Dr. Smith. It will come to him. And with that, good old Daddy Zack gets back to his digging and starts singing. I've been working on the railroad. You know, that was a cute scene, Kurt, but it didn't make sense to me that the robot couldn't put two and two together. He clearly could tell that there was something wrong with Daddy Zack because he said his memory banks didn't recognize him as Dr. Smith. And as we said, he'd earlier referred to Nexus as an alien artifact, not an alien being. Why can't he tell that Daddy Zack is an artificial life form, Kurt? Is this just a plot hole we have to overlook, or am I missing something here? Well, I wondered that at first, but then I realized that Daddy Zack is not an android. He's a pre-programmed clone. He says that he's just as human as Smith and made from the essence of Smith. Now, your essence isn't mechanical. It's more like your soul or your DNA or both. The confusing part is that the same master who made the androids is also the same guy who made the clone, so that's a little confusing. But think about this. If the androids were human, the Andronicans wouldn't need to Shanghai real people for their sacrifices. They would just make them, right? So, yes, they can clone them, but... They need to have an evil original to get around their abhorrence of waste because that's going on in the background, and we're going to hear more about that as well. It's a little convoluted, but who are we to judge other cultures, really? (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is like a eureka moment for me. It never occurred to me that Daddy Zack is different from the other Andronican androids because really, yeah, Daddy Zack is a clone. That's Mm -hmm. obvious now that you pointed it out, but I was always thinking that Daddy Zack was just another android, but an android is really like a mechanical simulacrum of a human being, whereas a clone is is made from the essence. As you said, it's more biological, right? So that is interesting. Ah, 
Yeah, and, and like I said, the part that's confusing is that the same creator created them both. You know, you'd assume it's the same process, but we never saw how he made the androids. It right. probably was a completely different process. You know, he, he could have taken out a box and assembled them part by part. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm so happy you, you pointed that out because that really never occurred to me before. Ah, great. Well, I do want to point out, I thought it was funny he started using the I've Been Working on the Railroad song, and Cushman relates that there was originally an effort made to use the song Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho, It's Off to Work We Go, from the 1937 Disney animated movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But when Irwin learned what the royalty fees would be for that, he opted instead for the 19th century folk song I've been working on the railroad, and you'll never guess why, Kurt. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> it was pub- public domain, and therefore it was free. And it works probably just as well. <laughs> Always stretching that very last penny. You know, why can't we get people like that in charge of our tax spending? Irwin, we need you to start a new series, Lost in Debt. <laughs> <laughs> Well, back inside the alien spaceship, Harry Wolfman Boris declares to our Dr. Smith that soon we be on Andronica. As he shuffles around the chamber, organizing his Erlenmeyer flasks of glug, Smith follows after him, asking the alien to reconsider. Surely they can make some sort of other arrangement. This has, after all, been some sort of mistake. But the alien is undeterred and firm. There is no mistake. You are king. He walks over to his laboratory table and begins to mix up something in one of those flasks as the sacrificial king continues to follow. Smith reminds the alien that the crown selected will to be their king. Perhaps <laughs> perhaps he can persuade the little nipper to change his mind, frantically adding that he has considerable influence with the boy. Wow. <laughs> nice. Let him take Will and stuff him instead of you. <laughs> what a pal. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I think he hangs out with Will so often for no other reason than to have the child on hand whenever he needs a good human shield. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The alien pauses and looks up from his workbench at Smith and with a deadpan expression then slowly says, Don't what, boy? Want you? Uh, but I'm not fit to be king, even a sacrificial king. Desperate to prove how unworthy he is, Smith degrades himself further by admitting that, much like me, all his ancestors were very poor peasants. As for noble virtues, well, he's a bit of a rogue, you know. And the alien once more looks up at Smith, answering, We know. We know all the time. He tells Smith they set out bait for him. But this confuses Smith. After all, the crown rejected him at first when he tried it on. Ah, but that's the rub, says the alien. Make you want it more. Make you lie. Betray your friends to become king. You pass test for kind of king we want. <laughs> you know, this reminds me so much of the psychology of a lot of women. You know, they always say, Hi, why can't I find a man who will treat me with respect, you know? They're always saying they're looking for a gentleman. But then when you try to, like, line them up with a gentleman date, they always end up wanting to go out with the, the rogues, you know? Oh, and they manipulate point. people like that, too. They they yeah. they know that the more that they say no, the more you're going to want it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the alien offers Smith a flask of glug. Smith takes it, but doesn't seem interested in drinking any of it, especially when the shaggy alien adds that it will make the stuffing work better. Yeah, what a line. Drink this so we can fit out your skin with the stuffing better. Talk about brutal honesty. And then Smith suggests he taxidermy the other males instead, including Will, of course. Yeah. But why me? Why take a rascal like me? 
When you have a noble mind like Professor Robinson, or great physical courage like Major West, or incipient genius like Will. Turning his back on Smith, the alien saunters back over to the monitor screen and answers, You are useless creature. They are useful creatures. Is wasteful to sacrifice useful creature. Trailing after the alien, the disgusted Smith asks, You mean you select your kings because they're useless? Sure, he says. That way nobody misses them. Nobody cares when they're gone. But you must give me an opportunity to turn over a new leaf. I'll prove myself. I shall be a new smith. Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. But the alien isn't buying anything smith's selling. Switching on the monitor, he answers flatly. Already is such a smith. You watch. The screen shows an image of the hard-working daddy Zack digging away at that irrigation trench. Smith wails. Oh, what a bitter blow. But that is not the real me. Oh, yes, says Wolfman Boris. He made that good Smith from the essence of the bad Smith. He is Dr. Smith, but without his faults. Looking up at the screen, the alien solemnly declares, He will be useful creature. Well, it's all just too much for Dr. Smith to bear. Thwarted at every turn, he watches as the hairy alien turns his back on him once more and steps away. In a flash of desperate rage, Smith suddenly raises the flask of Gloog and smashes it on the alien's bushy head, causing him to collapse to the floor like a sack of potatoes. For a moment, Smith appears stunned by what he's done and stares down in disbelief at his disabled captor. He turns around to escape, but when he does, he comes nose to nose with the lifeless form of the android Nexus. Gasping in horror, he pushes the rubber-faced android away, and it falls to the floor like an inanimate mannequin, which is obviously what it was, actually, at that point. Yeah, but I was surprised that they didn't use a real android in the first shot, you know, the actor, have Smith bump into him, then grab him and toss him to the floor into a pile of unseen mattresses. Then they could have cut away to the mannequin hitting the floor for just a second, but maybe the actors didn't want to embrace each other. (laughs) Especially when Smith is doing all those other little stereotypes. Or it might have been too hard on Harris's back. That whole scene, though, it reminded me of another movie, the decapitation scene from Eraserhead, if you've ever seen that movie. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Rubber bodies can look convincing, but latex faces always seem to give it away. Even so, it was a satisfying startle to have him bump into the frozen android and knock him over. Yeah, because it was a pretty good likeness, so they must have made that one especially for the show. Yeah, I'm going to revise my earlier comment. I will trade the original uh, Zachary Smith painting if I can get that dummy and have him somewhere (laughs) in the corner of my room, especially with the bling there. And then I can just go over there and talk into the medallion whenever I want to reach out and touch someone. Well, in the meantime, that alien has started to regain consciousness, and he's shown crawling across the floor toward the flashing jello mold, which he waves his hand across. Hearing the sound of the inner hatch control activated, Smith sees the exit door starting to slide down and cut off his escape, and he screams in horror. Then Smith hightails it towards the hatch, barely managing to crawl underneath and out before it slides shut. This is another scene I thought was brilliant. Did you notice when Smith sees that door closing, his close-up is noticeably out of focus? That's right. At first, I thought it was a blooper. But then I realized it actually adds to the claustrophobia of the situation. I thought, by Jove, 
I think they might have done that on purpose. Just like when the competing Batman series would shoot the villain's lair with the cameras deliberately tilted at angles. You know, it works. And of course, I can't prove this, but I I find it very hard to believe that a professional union camera guy, you know, wouldn't take out the tape measure and measure and and pull the focus the way that it's supposed to be done. I mean, that's, that's what they do. That's their job. So it's an easy shot. There's no movement in it. It would have been proper to keep it all in focus. But I do think it adds to the claustrophobia seeing them out of focus like that. And... If that effect doesn't get your heart racing, watching that stunt double dash underneath the closing door and crawl out just barely clearing his feet before it slides down like a guillotine. Wow, that was really intense. Well, he's made it through one door, but he's not out of the woods yet. Smith body crawls out of the ship's main airlock and down the ramp just before that outer hatch also slides close. Wasting no time, he picks himself up off the sand and scampers back to the safety of the Jupiter 2. At least he's hoping it is going to be safe. Back at the Robinson campsite, Marine and Penny are unloading the space-age Chinese laundromat while Judy is busy darning socks. From nowhere, the peaceful scene is interrupted with the cries for... Help! Help! Save me! Help! Save me! From a hysterical Zachary Smith... His pleas for assistance cause all three of the ladies to jump up in alarm. The distressed doctor runs into camp, looking over his shoulder to see if he's being pursued. He arrives near the entrance of the ship, panting and out of breath from his narrow escape. The ladies surround him in a circle, trying to calm him down as he frantically begs to be saved from some unnamed deadly peril. He's too panicked for them to make any sense of his babbling, but clearly terrified at something because he keeps nervously looking towards the edge of camp for danger. In the midst of the commotion, Penny innocently asks, What's wrong, Uncle Zack? Don't call me Zack! That sounds like the old Dr. Smith we know and love. Interesting how Penny called him Uncle Zack while the others called him Daddy Zack. I think you mentioned to me, you know, off mic that it was originally written as Uncle Zack, but that they changed it at the last minute, probably after Penny had already memorized her lines. That's right. I don't know the full background on it, but I did read that somewhere, that that was a change in the script, so. I wonder if it was a change in the script or if Jonathan Harris just did it, you know? (laughs) 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 We'll never know. (laughs) Carry on. Marine firmly tells the girls to get Smith inside, but he's convinced he must flee. There can be no safety for him there. She tries to reassure him that he'll be all right once he's inside, but that's when we can hear from a distance the sound of two happy laborers, Will and Daddy Zack, singing as they march merrily back into camp. Looking in the direction of the singing, Smith shrieks in horror, and the ladies turn around in astonishment. We have two Dr. Smiths. Can't you hear the whistle blowing? Rise up so early in the morn. Can't you hear the captain shouting? Die, blow your horn. Later inside the upper deck of the Jupiter 2, Professor Robinson holds court, sitting across from Dr. Smith and Daddy Zack. 
This scene, which did involve some of that very well-executed split-screen work, was a real opportunity for Jonathan Harris to showcase his acting chops. His performance in the face-off between the egotistical, self-centered, and agitated Smith character versus the hard-hat-wearing, selfless, and honest Zack character was a real treat to watch, I thought. Yeah, me too. Now, what in the world are we going to do with two of you? I should like to point out, Professor Robinson, that this person is a mere interloper. Well, that's fine, Zack, but, uh... Dr. Smith, if you please. All right. How do we get rid of him? Do you have any suggestions, Dr. Smith? Call me Zack. Zack, indeed. That I should live to hear my distinguished name bandied about in this fashion. John's trying hard not to look too amused by the lack of brotherly love Smith's showing for his duplicate. But Zack seems to be enjoying the confrontation. He smiles, then gives the original Smith a reality check. Oh, come, come, Zack. We both know what the name stands for. At least until now. What do you mean, sir? I mean that you are shiftless, unreliable, cowardly, two-faced, and a liar. Shall I go on? I shall not remain to hear myself insulted. He marches out towards the airlock, but then lingers by the exit to see where this is going. While the original Smith eavesdrops, the bemused professor tells Zack, Well, you certainly told him, didn't you? I certainly did, and about time too. Yes, but that doesn't solve the problem. Frankly, I don't think there's room in this group for two Dr. Smiths. I couldn't agree more. You'll have to get rid of him. Well, you certainly don't want him around, do you? He is our friend, and he was here first. But it really doesn't matter, Professor Robinson, not at all. You see, I was created from the essence of the original Smith, with a few of his worst characteristics omitted. But I am just as much Zachary Smith as he is. Just as human, just as real. Now, which one are you going to keep? With all his faults, Zach, Dr. Zachary Smith is our friend. We don't want to lose him. Hearing just what he wanted to hear, the original Smith curtly nods to himself, turns around, and marches out of the airlock, leaving Zack to ponder his next move. It's interesting to watch this scene because they cut back and forth between Smith watching and leaving and then what the professor says. And where they do that cut, that's totally arbitrary. I guess the director is pretty much deciding, or the editor, or probably the editor with the director, let's cut it here. They could have had Dr. Smith leave before he said all this stuff about him being our friend. I thought it was an awkward line because, you know, he's sounding like they're best bros and everything. So that was a little bit odd. But, you know, they have him leave just a little bit before he finishes some of his lines when he's content that he's not going to get thrown out. But it is interesting where they place that edit. It was. And it was kind of an awkward line. I agree with you. But I think they were trying to say a little bit about the Robinsons and their values, you know, and how they're relating to the Dr. Smith character. Someone mentioned to me that part of the appeal of the show is the way that the family deals with Dr. Smith. You know, he's this terribly flawed character full of vices and foibles. And we've commented before that he's kind of like a man-child, and I do think that's a good way to think of him. Because time and time again, that's how the family deals with him, almost like he's a child. Yes, they get exasperated with him, and every now and then they have to give him a little tough love. But at the end of the day, they always seem to show him some grace and forgive him because, well, they consider him part of the family. 
and uh, they're willing to give him another chance to grow up, I suppose. So I guess that's how I see it. There is a clinical term for this. It's called Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) You know, rather than give up the foreign agent who has tried to murder him, his wife and his three kids, John would rather surrender the innocent Smith clone who is actually a productive member of the crew instead of the lying leech that puts the family in danger every week. You know, I think the professor should go back to his old method of problem solving and let the computer decide. Side. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> well, later that afternoon, Daddy Zach is back out near the edge of camp, tirelessly working on prepping pipe sections for the water system while he hums a few more bars of his favorite work song. The camera cuts to Dr. Smith, who's shown heading out of the ship. So apparently, neither Smith's been kicked out of the family yet, anyway. Our original Smith halts for a second by the airlock and observes his virtuous twin's exertions. Then he saunters over to Zack for a little meeting of the minds. Just what exactly do you think you're doing? He's rebuilding the water system to provide warm bath water for the ladies. You're trying to worm your way into their affections. You're hoping when the chips are down, they'll choose you over me. Taking a breather, Zack replies with a smile that the choice must be theirs, wouldn't you say? Certainly not. I have already won a place in their hearts. But Zack reminds Smith about Wolfman Boris. He hasn't forgotten about his runaway sacrificial king. Smith boldly declares that they shall fight him off to the last man. Shaking his head, Zack mildly says he's afraid not. The alien has weapons that make anything they have look like toys. Addressing Dr. Smith as Zack, the clone says, I'm sorry, but you won't be around much longer. That shatters Smith's confidence. My dear sir... You don't mean to say that you will simply stand by and let that grisly creature take me? But what can he do? Smith suggests Zack take his place. But why should he? Because I'm human! But so is he, says Zack. But I'm the original Zachary Smith, the one with all the virtues, petty faults, weaknesses, and small evils such as cowardice, while you are without fault. That last bit seems to have touched a chord with Zack. Oh, my dear sir, surely you realize that sacrifice is more in your line than mine. Think it over. As Smith leaves the area, Zack appears to be thinking it over, indeed. Well, that evening, we're back inside the ship. John's on watch staring out of the main viewport. Marine comes up from below, asking where Don and Will are. He tells her that they're out patrolling the area. She asks if he's expecting trouble. He says it's a safe bet that the alien will return for his property, Dr. Smith. Glancing outside, Maureen sees the industrious Smith twin outside, still working away on that water system, and asks John, which Smith is that? Really, Maureen? (laughs) Have you ever seen the real Smith work like that? Yeah. Even Professor Robinson chuckles at her. She then asks where their Dr. Smith is. John tells her the last he saw, he was locked in his cabin, hiding under his bed, which gets a little laugh out of Mrs. Robinson. Then, turning serious again, she asks, how will they know when the androids are coming? Turns out he's got the robot out on patrol. He'll give them ample warning when they make their move. Then she asks the most important question. Does he think they'll be able to stop them? John shrugs, saying, I don't know if our lasers will work against androids. I don't even know if that force field will keep them out. (laughs) (laughs) What do you say, Kurt? (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, you should have figured out by now that if you want to keep the invaders out of their camp, the force field works about as well as our southern border. (laughs) It only keeps (laughs) the legal aliens out. Otherwise, it's an open invite to all aliens, androids, and MS-13 space invaders. (laughs) Oh, boy. 
Well, sometime later, we're following the robot on his midnight patrol through the rocky desert terrain. As he shuffles along, he certainly appears ready for action because his claws are already extended, ready to fire an electrified bolt at the first sign of trouble. I'm wondering if despite his prime directive programming, will he have any qualms about shooting a fellow cybernetic organism? Nah, that only applies to humans. He was more than willing to terminate with extreme prejudice and war the robots, remember that? True enough. That's a good point. Rounding a boulder, our B-9 is suddenly confronted by one of those large guard androids who stepped out from behind the rocks. But the invader doesn't attack, he just blocks the pathway. So the robot holds his fire, but begins waving his extended arms loudly, announcing, Danger! Danger! Red alert! Distracted by the android in front of him, B-9 totally misses the other large android thug sneaking up from behind. It's the old one-two punch, because that other guard slips right up next to our robot's backside and neatly unplugs his power pack, (laughs) rendering him harmless. Well, that was too easy. Both guards then run off into the night for their next target, leaving old B-9 folded over like a cheap suit. Yeah, well, so much for the sixth sense in detecting alien artifacts. Before, he could do it from within the ship when they were about 100 feet away, but now he can't even sense them from behind a rock or even directly behind him. Yes, he needs to have his senses calibrated, I fear. Yeah, I think the continuity circuit is out of, out of whack or something. Back at the Jupiter campsite, Daddy Zack, dressed in hard hat and work apron, is crouched down by the garden, still laboring with that water system. A stone-faced Professor Robinson, laser rifle at the ready, approaches and advises him to knock off the work because he's expecting an attack. But the good Smith twin replies with a gentle smile that he has nothing to fear. The alien isn't after him. Besides, he doesn't feel justified taking up arms against his creator. If there should be a conflict, he prefers to remain a neutral party and continue with his work. All right, says John with a shrug. Have it your way. Zack returns to his duties and John walks over to the edge of the camp. Just then, Don and Will race back into the area. They report they just saw the robot and all his power's been knocked out. Oh boy. But... Apparently, they didn't put his power pack back in, or maybe they couldn't find it. I don't know why, but... uh... You know, I assume that the aliens kept that power pack, but that begs the question, don't the Robinsons have a spare that they swap out when the other one is recharging? Because if they don't, we won't be able to see the robot operating in any of the future episodes because, spoiler alert, the aliens never give the power pack back. Yeah, they've got to have some spares. I, there's got to be a spare one somewhere around there. So, yep. mm, good point. Always noticing those things we're not supposed to notice. Of course. Well, John's certain they're in for it now. He tells Will to get inside the ship. Heading that way, Will stops to warn Daddy Zack that he better get inside too. Daddy Zack explains to the boy that he's already informed his father that he intends to stay neutral. Yeah, but you might get hurt if you stayed out here. Still smiling, the doe-eyed Zack tells his little friend that he has nothing to fear. The purity of his intentions will be both his sword and buckler. Then he asks where his alter ego is. Last Will heard, he was still hiding under his bed. Poor fellow, he says to the grinning boy. I'm afraid moral and physical courage are simply not included in his makeup. He tells Will to run along inside where he'll be safe. But first he asks the boy to fetch his wrench over by the rocks at the perimeter of the camp. Uh Uh-oh. Dashing over to retrieve Daddy's ex-tool, Will rambles around the far side of a large boulder. 
No sooner does he reach down to pick up the pipe wrench than a burly android guard, wearing black, leaps out of the shadows. Startling Will literally off his feet. Will's frozen in fear for a second, and we're shown that menacing artificial man looking up from the boy's perspective. Oh dear. Yeah, that was a scary scene. Run, Will, run! That's just what the boy does, racing back into the camp at warp speed. He alerts Dad and Don, who are busy setting up the force field projector about the presence of the intruder, yelling, Dad, they're out there! The androids? Yep. John tells Will to get back to the ship, then asks Don if the projector is ready. The Major answers, ready as it'll ever be. The Professor throws the switches and the force field comes to life. We're all crossing our fingers that this time it'll work. John yells once more for Smith or Zack or whatever to get inside, but he merely answers that his thoughts and prayers go with him. He's staying put. Well, you can't say the professor didn't try. Yeah, like my parents used to warn me, if you fall out of that tree and break both your legs, don't come running to me. Exactly. John takes a few steps towards the entrance ramp where Don and Will are standing by, when suddenly... violent bolt of cosmic lightning flashes across the sky. The fierce sound brings the ladies upstairs and they join the boys on the entrance ramp. What now? Suddenly the lightning stops and the booming voice of the Andronican master thunders from beyond. Terrestrials, listen to me. Hand over the real smith and we will not harm you. The camera quickly cuts to the faces of the castaways, including Daddy Zack. They're all wearing worried expressions. Oh dear. Then we're shown the hairy Andronican in his ship, using his advanced communication medallion as a high-tech PA system. You know, I'm surprised today's rappers don't use similar medallions to recite their lyrics into. It's much cooler looking than a microphone. Plus, it already has the gold chain. (laughs) If you do not surrender him, you will be destroyed. Our powers are greater than yours. We have already incapacitated your robot. If you doubt our strength, watch this demonstration. And with that, another violent bolt of cosmic energy is unleashed, and three more androids pop (laughs) into the Robinson campsite. They take a few steps towards the Jupiter-2, then halt, standing still as statues on the other side of the force field. The men ready their lasers, but for a moment hold their fire. That's when Nexus suddenly appears from behind one of the boulders. As the music builds to a crescendo, he slowly and deliberately steps forward, passing the three stationary guards, and then dramatically walks right through the force field then halts, still standing several yards from the Robinsons. I thought that was a very cool animation because it actually looked like he was breaking through the barriers if the energy was following the outline of his body. I thought that was well done. Yeah, it's way cooler than when the aliens just wobble a little bit as they pass through the force field like they start to do in the second season with no special effects whatsoever, just a little sound, you know. Yeah, that was good. The shaggy alien speaks again into his medallion, warning... Even your force field cannot stop us. But this time, instead of hearing the booming alien's voice, 
the camera cuts to a very pasty-faced Nexus who repeats his master's warning to the castaways. Well, you know, actually, the way you just described it, it sounded like it all came from the android, but I I thought they heard it twice. I thought they heard it when he said it into his medallion, and then I thought they heard it again when the android said it, which was a little bit strange. I mean, because, you know, it's obviously going to have more impact when the voice of God says it rather than when some pasty-faced android in a leotard says it. Well, I admit I was confused by that because the way it actually unfolded was when he says the line, when the hairy alien says the line. You see him. You see the alien. And, you know, and it's not echoing. So you it's don't just, know. You don't know if they heard it or not. So I guess it, right. it could be taken either way. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, but I, it, it is kind of confusing. And like you said, it's more effective to hear the booming voice. Why does he need to have Nexus yeah. repeat his words? Pasty Nexus doesn't give any gravitas. You know, give me Boris any day. Absolutely. Well, hearing that, trigger-happy Don raises his laser rifle, saying maybe he can stop the androids with this. Now, that's the second time in two weeks that Don was willing to risk all the lives of the family to take on a superior fighting force to defend Smith. So either Daddy Smith has somehow seduced him, or Evil Smith has discovered some really effective blackmail (laughs) leverage on Don. Because this is weird. Oh, my God. (laughs) Hey, I didn't okay. say anything. You know, seduce can be taken in a variety of different ways. Right. I mean, nope. could have won him over as a really good friend. I meant that in a platonic sense. How dare you, sir? How dare you? Uh, I just have to keep my mind out of the gutter, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. But before the major can squeeze off a blast, Dr. Smith comes running out of the ship shouting, No, stop! They're all stunned that Smith crawled out from under his bed. What's more, he's carrying a laser pistol. Hmm. Dr. Smith explains that it's no use. The end is inevitable. The Andronicans will overwhelm their defenses and drag him off anyway. John asks if he has any other suggestions. Yes, he says. He will go out there and surrender to the aliens. Will cries, no, we won't let you. Oh, dear little nipper. My mind is made up. I shall give my life gladly to save those I have grown to love. But whether on the scaffold high or battle's van, the fittest place a man can die is where he dies for man. How beautiful. Yes, how beautiful. If it sounds a little too poetic for Dr. Smith, it's because it's really from a 19th century poet, Michael Joseph Barry, who was a famous uh, Irish nationalist. So that's a... Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I knew it was a poem and I might have even read what it was, but I I didn't catch the Irish connection. So that's pretty cool. You know, he made that other comment about being descended from Irish. I'm beginning to think the writer here might have had a little Irish in him. He seems well-versed in the Irish things. Yeah, go Irish. (laughs) And he probably washes with Irish spring too. Manly, yes, but I like it too. Ah, me laddies, and eat Lucky Charms every morning for breakfast. (laughs) Ah. Well, all this selflessness from our battle, Dr. Smith, has everyone both concerned and frankly at a loss for words, including Daddy Zack, who's wearing a very apprehensive expression. The professor asks Smith if he has any idea what they'll do with him. Perhaps he can make an arrangement with them, but if not, at least he'll be king for a little while. With a sour look on his face, he adds, I might even learn to drink glug and make slimoth. Oh, rest assured, Zachary, you'll get to eat and drink so much that you'll feel stuffed. (laughs) (laughs) John says he's sorry, but he can't allow it. But for once, Smith has the draw on the professor. He pulls his pistol out and warns John to stay back. He'll shoot if he must to save the lives of the others. Then, with a look of melancholy and voice filled with pathos, he bids his dear friends farewell. 
Smith turns on his heels and marches over to Nexus and the others. Over by the garden, Daddy Zack follows his doppelganger intently with his eyes, but stays silent as a church mouse. The tension builds as Dr. Smith slowly approaches Nexus and standing face to face with the android, surrenders the laser pistol to him. Then, in a commanding tone, Smith orders his erstwhile lieutenant. Fetch the royal crown and raiment. If I must go, I will go as your king. Nexus hears and obeys. He dramatically raises an arm, snaps his fingers, then with another... (laughs) Another android appears, carrying the king's regalia. He places the royal robe on Smith's shoulders, Then Nexus hands Smith the crown. King Zachary places the magnificent piece on his head. Which, you know, that's actually kind of a neat point. No one else has the authority to actually crown a king rather than the crown. So that's actually how they do it in a coronation. Yeah, back in the old days, it was always a cleric or even the pope. And that person was representing God. Exactly. Because that's what the whole thing was supposed to represent is that God is giving him this power. And that's why you wouldn't dare question the king. You were, in effect, questioning God's authority. Exactly. So it was actually a nice touch that they did that rather than having Nexus put the crown on his head for Mm -hmm. him. So I thought that was cool. Wearing a pitiful look, he cuts his eyes away from Nexus and back over to the Robinsons, raises his hand, giving them a last subdued royal wave goodbye. It looked like one of those waves Queen Elizabeth gives. (laughs) Poor Dr. Smith, I I mean King Zachary I, turns his back on his friends, then steps sprightly out of camp, trailed respectfully by his android court. But they only get a few steps away before there's a final, blinding flash of cosmic energy. And with a pop, Smith, Nexus, and the guards all vanish in an instant. Our castaways are still processing what just happened when Will exclaims, They're gone! They took him! But without missing a beat, we hear a familiar, irritated voice blare. Certainly not! Daddy Zack springs up from his knees and strides over to the astounded castaways, throwing off his hard hat, tossing his wrench to the ground. There, enough of this masquerade. Who am I back? I'm afraid I shall have to retire to restore my vital forces. (laughs) Blurting out, Daddy Zack! Will reaches out to touch his arm but gets a love tap for his trouble. Careful, Will, you don't want to end up like Debbie did last week. Daddy Zack, indeed. I never want to hear that revolting name ever again in my presence. John laughs. Now that's the real Dr. Smith. It sure is. Everyone's thrilled and relieved to learn that their original Dr. Smith isn't really on his way to be skinned, stuffed, and displayed on Andronica. Oh, no, he's quite safe. Only the innocent newborn Daddy Smith will die screaming. But since he lived such a short period of time, maybe he won't miss living as much. (laughs) (laughs) Smith says it was quite a strain pretending for all those hours to be that noble fellow Daddy Zack, but happily it paid off. Before leaving to retire for the night, Smith pauses by the ship's entrance to reassure the others that both he and his alter ego are quite convinced that nothing dreadful will come to him. Given the Andronican's horror of waste, once they learn how useful Daddy Zack is, they'll alter their plans and release him. Daddy Zack? Bah! 
Everyone gets a good giggle out of that, and things certainly seem back to normal. Did you recognize Don's parting shot to Smith? Good night, sweet prince. Yes. That's a Shakespeare quote from Hamlet when the prince is dying and everyone is standing around wringing their hands. Mm. Smith caught it, and that's when he responds that he doesn't think that they're going to skin Daddy Smith after all. He and uh, Don like to trade those Shakespearean things. The, the last time it was like lead on Macduff and so forth, you know. Yeah. Was... Usually it's not Don who knows the Shakespeare, uh, but in this instance he did. But. Uh, And I thought it was kind of interesting because Smith was prepared to just walk off. He didn't really care. But when he brought up what basically Don was saying was, well, I guess they're just going to kill your clone, aren't they? And that's when he responds, well, no, actually, they're not. Yeah, yeah. By the way, that little bit was not in the original script. That was added because of concerns from the network censors that the story was ending on too much of a down note. And I guess I can see their point about that. It's nice to know that such a useful creature survived on Andronica, if that's the way it went. Yeah, but once again, deep space is such a terrifying place because, let's face it, you're so far from law enforcement that people can get away with piracy and murder very easily. So playing for keeps, even if it's only occasionally an off-screen at that, seems a lot more realistic. Yeah, I see your point on that. Hmm. In the final moments of this story, the family heads inside to turn in for the night, but little Will lags behind. Sitting down on the edge of the ramp with a far-off look in his eyes, Mom and Dad notice and ask him what's the matter. Will says he's glad to have the real Dr. Smith back, but he was just thinking about Daddy Zack. He was really nice. He sort of wishes that. Catching himself, he says, No, I guess there wouldn't be room on one planet for two Dr. Smiths. Mom and Dad both agree with a chuckle. Then they all three head back into the ship. And it's another lighthearted case of All's Well That Ends Well, Kurt. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, give us your thoughts on His Majesty Smith, Kurt. Well, I I don't know why I like this one as much as I did, but I did. The makeup is terrible. There's no monster. There's no real fighting. And there's actually, there's no real exciting action at all. But it does seem to have great atmosphere and a lot of fun watching all the scheming going on back and forth. Smith scheming against them, them scheming against Smith, and the double, and the flip-flop, you know, and the switcheroo at the end. And watching evil Smith outsmart the aliens using that clone, that that was the real, you know, finishing Mm. touch there, the bow on the top of the gift. I think what really sells this episode, though, is the horrifying consequences of failure. Because if Smith isn't able to extradite himself from this dilemma, he's not only going to die, he's going to be skinned and stuffed and put on display in a museum for 10,000 years. (laughs) That's got to hurt. And I think as apex predators, we have some sort of instinctual fear of dying and getting the same treatment that we give our prey. Because we're all too familiar with what happens. You know, if you're a prey, you probably don't know what it means to be killed and eaten. But if you're the predator, you go through the process, you methodically skin them and you peel back the meat. <laughs> we're terrified of being eaten by sharks or by grizzly bears, even though we eat other animals every single day. And the thought that someone would stuff us like a trophy, the same way we skin and stuff deer and other animals, it really unnerves us. So this is the second episode in a row where Smith signs away his life to an alien. You're hoping that next time he'll be a little bit more careful, but don't count on it. In both instances, it was a blast to watch, and although it's not an all-time favorite of mine, it's very solid, and I I watched this several times, and each time I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, it's funny. This has always been a sentimental favorite of mine, and 
I know it's got plenty of potholes all over it. And like you said, the alien's not that scary or even super interesting. And many find it way too silly, but I've always enjoyed His Majesty Smith, mainly because of the way that Jonathan Harris just chews up the scenery. And I know it's a template for a lot of the second season episodes, but if most of those measured up to this one, I'd have a hard time complaining too much. But I did want to ask you one little question. I don't think you'd watched this one before we got ready to review it. Is that right? Yeah, no, I had no recollection of this one. If I saw it, I I had no recollection at all of it. I wondered how far into the climax did you realize that the two Smiths had traded places or was that obvious right off the bat? You know, I confess I didn't realize it until it was actually revealed at the end. Because he was so convincing working on that pipe assembly and acting polite and brave. You know, it was just incongruous that the real Dr. Smith could do that. I should have figured it out because he actually suggests that they swap places earlier in with Daddy Smith. You know, earlier in the story, he asks him to think about it. Plus the fact that the episode was running out of time and we all know that Smith isn't going to get killed. So they have to come up with some way of doing it. But I guess I was just too wrapped up in the story to, to even notice the time. And I was fooled just like the Andronicans were. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because, of course, I knew it all along because I've seen it so many times. But it's nice to know that they were able to pull off that surprise with you. If I had figured it out, it would have only been at the time when he's bidding farewell and he says, "'Tis better to die, you know, on the scaffold." That that was yeah. that was the only time when he basically dropped the act. And uh, all the way up until that point, both of those guys were being very convincing. I mean, granted, the clone wasn't acting any way other than hiding underneath the bed, but that was so typical Smith, it was very convincing. Right. Well, another little question I just wanted to ask you is, these two episodes that we've just reviewed now, The Space Trader and His Majesty Smith, they are so similar in the storylines. Did it bother you that we had such similar stories back to back? Well, I... It only became obvious when I started to think about it afterwards. When it's happening, it doesn't seem obvious at all. And the uh-huh. truth is, they recycle this storyline of the contract, that sort of thing, later on. I mean, I mentioned Space Beauties earlier. Space sure. Beauties, it's the same sort of thing. She signs the contract. So they revise and they recycle all of it. The thing that makes it so odd is that it's back-to-back, and you would have thought they would have juggled it with another episode, but I don't. Right. I just don't think they had another one in the hopper. They had no choice once it was recorded. You know, they didn't have a, a spare one floating around. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we both enjoyed it, which is great. Well, before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. The scene opens late at night with Dr. Smith, Penny, Will, and the robot gathered around a large metal cylinder that's half buried in the soil. They're selecting items from a large cardboard box to place in that cylinder, which turns out to be a time capsule. Will thinks they should get back since it's getting late, but Dr. Smith assures him, never fear, Smith is here. Suddenly, the mood is interrupted by the distant howl of what sounds like a wolf. Looking up at the double full moons, Smith becomes convinced that what they've heard was the cry of a werewolf. The kids are dubious, but when the robot confirms he's right, they all four make a hasty retreat back to the safety of the Jupiter II. As they quick step along the path to the ship, suddenly B-9 goes into full warning mode. Smith urges them to continue quickly along the path to the ship, but just then... A large, hairy wolfman lumbers out from behind a boulder and blocks our terrified castaways. Oh dear. Will they be able to escape, or will they wind up devoured by that ferocious, man-eating Canis Lupus? Unfortunately, before we can find out, 
the freeze frame slides in to tell us that this scary tale is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Oh boy, Kurt, better stock up on silver bullets before we watch this one. I don't know. I'm beginning to feel so sorry for all the monsters getting killed on Lost in Space. I don't think I could squeeze the trigger. (laughs) But I'll be there. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 25th episode of Lost in Space titled The Space Croppers. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.